What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How's it going, everybody? Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available anywhere. <laughs> I love mine. I know that's for sure. Uh, find your next uh, heat treating oven at evenheat-kiln.com. Get to the chopper! <laughs> All right, so I'm here flying solo. We're doing the single track. This is a special holiday programming. Uh, I am me. My, I'm sorry. Let me introduce myself real quick. My name is Marco Malmasi, Malmasi Fire Arts. I'm usually here with Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, Knives and Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives. But in their absence, we have somebody doing a great job filling in their void. It is Mr. Nick Wheeler of Bowie and Fighter Making Infamy. I don't know if like, I don't know if you're are you infamous for your Bowie and Fighter knives? I mean, that's what I've seen the most of. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank okay. you for having me here. Yeah, no, I really I want to just I really appreciate you taking the time and let me come down and chat with you. You know, I think this is going to just going to flow like the conversation we've kind of been having already, hopefully. Okay. And no pressure on you. Just super stoked to have you here, man. I am scared. <laughs> it's okay. I, you can see. I can see a tear coming down. <laughs> <right now. laughs> All right. So as we normally do on the podcast, we start with kind of what we've been up to uh, this the past week. You know, it could be knife making, it could be whatever in life in general. Uh, for us, for me, I'll kick it off with you know I've been let's see what I've been doing. You know, so Jeff did the single track last week, and we did the the short episode the week before that. I've been uh, working on this damn chef's knife that uh it i just i couldn't like nail the pattern on the chef's knife and it, it took the third try three times of making the steel and forging out the blade and i'm working with this crew forge v core mm. and it forges way slower than yeah. the 1080 and 15 and 20 cladding and so by the time i got it like welded and forged into a bar stock that i can then forge an integral from it it looks like a like ugly 
black banana twinkie <laughs> thing. It's I don't. It's all like curved and where you don't want curves and stuff. Anyways, I've been fighting with it, but I got it on this last try. Uh, man, I I got the handle glued up. I got everything's going pretty well. Uh, I'm right now. I'm on the hand sanding, and uh, Crew Forge V is so incredibly wear resistant. It's it is not fun to sand. No, I only I've only done it once before, and it was a full integral chef's knife, and that was a pain in the ass. But apparently, I forgot how hard that was because I was like, "Yeah, let's do Crew Forge V on this chef's knife." That sounds like a great idea. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I think it's 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 an incredible material. Mm-hmm. Like in on one of the previous uh, iterations, I would ground it down to my normal geometry for a chef's knife. And because I wasn't going to use it for that build, I was like, well, let's see what I can do with it. And I started slamming into a two by four with it. Nice. And it's, I, I think at the edge, it's like two thousandths. And then let's see, maybe a quarter of an inch up the blade. It's, uh, it's maybe, maybe around 15 thousandths. And so it's pretty thin geometry and nothing happened to it. Wow. Like no chips, no riveting, no nothing. But I, I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily the greatest metallurgist but i think like whatever i'm doing to help set up that grain structure mm-hmm. is, uh, in preheat treat before final hardening is definitely doing it justice because it, it's it's pretty hardy stuff and then that that's at 62 rockwell yeah i'm really impressed with it i've used it quite a bit now and yeah. um it's like say it's it is not fun to finish uh i i haven't used a ton of the super high alloy steels but i've I've done quite a few S30V blades and 3V blades mm. that I fully sanded out. <clears throat> and I would say it's at least at the same level, if not harder, to finish. Really? Yeah, for me. I mean, Wow. Because I, I always hear people... Uh, sorry, sorry, Craig. I'm taking <laughs> off my hoodie. That's the whole point of this, this single track, right? No editing? <laughs> All right. So, sorry. <laughs> I'm getting too hot now. Um that's interesting because I always hear about how some of those kind of more uh, like those te- what are those, are those like techno stainless or those stainless or high just ultra like yeah like S thirty V is a high vanadium stainless yeah and it's, just it's how wear resistant they are and how much of a nightmare they are to clean up yeah it's it's not fun but I I've done a lot of S thirty V hunters yeah and I thought they were easier to sand than the crew forbs that I've used sure so. Yeah, which is interesting because the whole the whole reason they they brought the steel to the industry in the first place was a steel that was uh, easier easier to work with with simple tools for the heat treating, right. which I think it I think it does work well even with a simple setup. Yeah, but it's it's not user friendly when it comes to finishing. So right, and like you and I talked about before, if, if you can go with the belt finish, then that kind of takes takes that issue away. Sure. But if you're an idiot like me and you insist on <laughs> or me and sanding everything, then it well, make, makes you hate life. Yeah, and also something else I've heard of people doing is actually sandblasting it. Um, mm. you know, they'll they'll sand it or machine finish it to a certain port, uh, point, but then sandblasting it uh, because the sandblasting can create a nice even finish. Yeah, uh, and it's obviously it's a lot less work mm-hmm. uh, for the maker to finish that out that way. Um, I've never finished any of them that way. I, I actually, I don't think I've done a sandblast finish since, uh, like the early days with like ATS 34 and stuff. Mm. 
it actually, yeah, it's if if you set up your prep work prior to, and then you get the right blast media, it makes it does make a nice finish. Yeah, but. look at that. We're getting into the tips already. We <laughs> haven't even gotten to the question. Um, I guess to tie up what I've been up to last week, things are going well with that knife. I'm almost. I actually, I right now, all I got to do is the the etching and the Damascus finish, and then sharpen the knife, and um, and I, I'm gonna oil up the handle, and then it's gonna be ready to go. Awesome, which is nice. Other than that, um, you know, it's as we are recording. I can't even remember off the top of my head what day today is. I think it's. I think it's, it's couple, Sunday. Sunday, a couple weeks before Christmas, and um, so we took our little dude to go see Santa yesterday. It was a lot of fun. We had the fire. They had the big fire truck out front. Yeah. And it was like, it was the one with the extension ladder. That thing is like extends out like a hundred feet or something <laughs> like that. It was bonkers. They had the stabilizers out on the side. And it was a trip to see something that large and heavy just kind of like hanging out, mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere. It was really cool. And the dude got to ju- jump inside the fire truck, ring the bell. And That's my, awesome. wife was, my wife was worried that maybe they, uh, they weren't, they might have left some things out that kids aren't supposed to play with or push buttons <laughs> or like accidentally turn on hoses or drop equipment or something like that. That would be a bummer. But anyways, that's what I've been up for uh, how did he, the last couple of How years. did he do with Santa? Because I know at he, that that age, like a lot of times kids are like... He's, he's actually always done really well with Santa. Oh. And I think part of it is that... Uh, my father-in-law, my wife's dad, has a great big white beard. Oh, okay. And uh, and so he kind of like he grew up with a guy uh, that looks like Santa in his <laughs> life already. So he's just like, yeah, it's just another big big guy with big old beard. No that's, problem with that. That's awesome. Yeah. So he's been pretty laid back about it. And uh, like I think he was doing like he does these funny like power poses where he's like <laughs> it looks like like 80s hip-hop album covers and stuff like that it's pretty rad and he was dancing and super stoked to talk to santa yesterday so that was really cool that is really cool so well all right sir mr nick wheeler what have you been up to uh oh wait i think i have notes here i'm supposed to talk about stuff i do we just updated my website (laughs) (laughs) so we just updated my, my wife just updated my website thank you sweetheart uh she's listening uh she's been busting her ass to get that done um and so we changed around our store and stuff on the website. Uh, let's see. Oh, I just auctioned off a very special knife that I built with Neil Kamimura. Um, I flew over and spent a couple of weeks hanging out with him and teaching him kind of like my approach to especially uh, chef's knife grinding and Damascus making. And so this billet, uh, the steel, we worked together kind of like as you would if you're instructing somebody. Just like you take turns to each heat, kind of pass right. it back and forth. And so I showed him, we worked on this built together, making this steel, this pattern. Uh, we called it Pele's Fire. And uh, and then we each took a chunk, and then from there it was our own work. So we each forged out. Oh, nice. Uh, forged out a chunk of the steel. We basically did like a monster loaf. Um, and so it, you know how you cut up a billet and then mm-hmm. restack it? We just restacked it like that, like normal. And then we forged it down and welded it to a certain point. And then at that point, we let it cool down and cut off a loaf. Just sliced the end of it off. And yep. And then forged, drew that back out into a bar and then forged a knife out. So instead of tiling or butt weld or anything, it's just like a, a basically a standard re-weld. Stack. Right. And uh, as long as you take your time and do things right, pff, we beat the shit out of that, <laughs> out of the, that steel. 
and Neil was because he goes ham on stuff. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any of his forging videos, but he goes crazy on it. And he he was pleasantly surprised at how well the steel held together. And it's like, you know, as long as you take the proper steps and the steel's welded, it's stuck. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's one material. And so uh, so we each you know we forge out knives and then we you know we finished them out differently and and did our own things. But um, uh, yeah, I know I've I've done that. A couple times in the past, sure. and I know the the big thing for me, and I, you're a lot better at this than I am. But the the thing for me was trying to sort of foreshadow mm. what my distortion was going to be. Because sure. I mean, obviously, you, like I said, you know better than I do. But you know, patterning is all about controlled distortion. Sure. And so, like, you have your your stack that you're going to take your slice off of, and obviously, you know, depending on what your dimensions are of your your loaf like yeah. you draw that out you're going to drastically move things and so for me the the toughest part about that was like i said sort of foreshadowing how just how much distortion am i going to have yeah. by the time this is stretched out and forged into a blade but for sure um but i am kind of a weirdo and i like even some of the intricate patterns i i like when you can see that it was forged to shape yeah. Uh, I like having that history in it. I know a lot of people, if they spend a whole lot of time on a real intricate pattern, they they kind of want to just forge out a bar and, and go from there so that they're not distorting it even more. Sure. But, um, like I said, I'm a weirdo, so I, no, I kind of like that history in the blade. Well, and I think it – I mean – I, th- I feel the same way. I like seeing that. And I think there are, there are different customers who like seeing that as well. I think, I mean, I think there's, there's something for everybody, you know? And so if you're forging out that Damascus bar and then you, then you cut out or stock remove your material, your blade shape from there, that's, you know, there, there's a group of people who love and appreciate that because then the pattern, like you said, is, is not distorted. Mm-hmm. It's retained versus seeing it, seeing some of kind of like the relics and seeing how the pattern is distorted by pulling down the heel or stretching it out and drawing out the tip. Um, you can see what, what that more than anything speaks to kind of the, the set of skills that a particular maker has to be able to do that. Right. Now, whether or not a customer cares about that or not, is a different story. Um, but ideally you are, you know, the people who do care about that are finding you or you're finding them. Um, that way, all that extra effort and work doesn't go to waste and you can be compensated for it. Yeah, for sure. One of my favorites on that would be, I've done a couple integrals that had, they were a Turkish twist pattern. Yeah. And because, you know, then at your integral bolster, you've got like however many bars, twisted bars you put in there and you've got that squeeze down. Right, right. And then you see that like pinched and then like bulge out away for your, for your, Choil and your dropped edge, right. and then you know flowing into the profile. I've always just really liked that kind of thing. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and then uh, what am I doing right here? What's this last one? Finishing up custom knives with blue. Oh yeah, that was the one I was talking about before. All right, now Nick, <laughs> I'll shut the hell up and I'll pass it over to you. What have you been up to? Um, you know, we can just kind of go into the. Well, we got other stuff. I'm sorry. Before we get too deep, before we do our deep dive with Nick Wheeler. Uh, we do have other stuff, but how has the last couple of weeks for you been? I've I've seen you've been posting up some more hand sanding stuff. Yeah, I mean it, it's good. I mean I've really gotten into boats and hose lately, so that's that's Sweet. a lot of fun. Living the baller know? life. Yeah, like worldwide productions and stuff. But um, <laughs> no, 
Sorry, I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> no, I I work a you know pretty funky schedule. Sure. And then uh, this last year just got really hectic with family and a lot of stuff that was going on. I, I worked um, I had 32 days last winter that I worked without a day off and stuff like that. Holy and so, you, you know, you get on track in the shop and then something like that just totally derails you. And so sure. I've just finally kind of getting things even back out now and trying to get back on track. And yeah. uh, it, it's hard for me to to have the, those big interruptions. Cause like we kind of talked about earlier, just you and I, you, know, you, the way your brain functions and how you focus on certain aspects of the knife. And like, if you work on it and you get it to a certain point and then you set it aside and you come back to it the very next day, it's pretty easy to pick up where you right. left off. But if you come back, you know, a month later, you're like, I don't, e I don't even know what I was doing. <laughs> and, doing. and you spend yeah. the whole day just trying to figure out where you left off. And yeah. so, um, but I actually have had a little bit of time off lately and, uh, I've been, been in the shop trying to get some stuff going and it feels really good. It, sure. it feels nice to be doing stuff. Yeah. Creating well, things. I've definitely been seeing, I feel like I've been seeing you post more frequently too on Instagram. Yeah. Just kind of some of the stuff you've been working on. And I think it, one of the things I've always admired about, uh, your working has actually inspired me to share as much as I do. Uh, it's just kind of the way you take people along, uh, kind of whatever you're working on and show them your kind of your approach. You're not, you're not trying to say like, this is the best way. This is the only way, <laughs> you know, you're just showing them how you're trying to do it. And I, I've, I've definitely been inspired by that. And I've obviously, you know, with my pattern on Wednesdays or any kind of other kind of goofy knife making stuff that I show and share has definitely been, uh, you know, I've taken your lead. Uh, well, I, I really appreciate that. It's, uh, Marek and I talked about it, like what would the offline before we were recording and, uh, <laughs> the, that has been a big thing is, you know, just openly sharing information. I've just like, I've enjoyed it and, and that, you know, there's benefits for us as makers and there's benefits for collectors that, you know, are interested in seeing like where their money's going, like, like how was that made and, uh, you know, why, why does it cost that much? And all those things wrapped up, I just, I enjoy it. And, and I, and I know that I could be more flashy and exciting and try to make things, uh, more watchable and digestible for the average person. But, uh, that's not, not really where my interest has been. It's more been on, you know, sharing like how I actually do things and just explaining sure. and, a lot of times, even though it's been quite a while that I've been making knives now, there's a lot of things where I still very readily remember when I started doing whatever the process was and like a lot of things that, that didn't work for me mm -hmm. or things that were like stumbling blocks. And so I feel like I can kind of shed some light on like, well, maybe yeah, if you're doing this, it might be because of, you know, X, Y, Z, try this, try that. And, um, I don't know. Mostly, I just I just like doing it. I don't. Sometimes I don't even know why. I just, <laughs> yeah, sure. I like doing it. Yeah. No, I love. It. Well, and it, what's really cool about your videos that uh, and the content that you share, you do you do go long form, and I think actually, especially for makers who are interested in learning, that's kind of the best way. Like. 
to be the fly. Basically, you're creating a fly-on-the-wall experience for folks. And there's so much nuance in different people's techniques on how they grind or how they forge or how mm -hmm. they, whatever they do that you never know where you're going to pick up a tip or notice something that's going to completely change your knife-making game for you. Uh, I can't remember who who said this, but like true artists or not true artists, but I don't know. The ability to steal with your eyes mm -hmm. is the best, is the best thing you can do. And, um, just through observation or, and just watching just through kind of like escapism in a way that you kind of, the opportunity you create with your videos, you know, <laughs> well, as, as Jeff was saying the other week about watching that in the middle of the night, <laughs> your hubby sitting next to you. Sometimes you gotta get some Nick Wheeler in here in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, and it. I mean, there, I, I suppose, in a way, it it could be considered a little bit selfish, just because I I usually get things out of doing it. Like, sure. um, you know, when you 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 might have you might have done something you know a hundred times, but then you record yourself doing it, and then you watch it, and you're like what am I doing? Like, why, <laughs> why did I do that? Or like, that doesn't look right. Like I should probably rethink that. And there's been right this second, I probably couldn't give you a specific example, but I know there's been a few things over the years where like I would record it and be like, well, this is how I do it and blah, blah, blah. And then I'd like be trying to like edit it a little bit. And I was like, that's really dumb. Why do I do that? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not showing anybody that. And then I would, you know, come up with a different approach. And so I think it helps, helps me too, you know? Um, and then it, it's the interesting thing, like we talked about before, I forget how many people might end up watching stuff, you sure. know, like I, I'll record it and in my head, six people are going to watch it sure. <laughs> and it's probably six people that I know that also make knives and it's not going to be anything new to them. And I, I I don't I don't know why, but I, I, my brain does that pretty often. And then I'll have somebody that that isn't a knife maker has like a fresh set of eyes, and they see it, and they're like, "Oh, why did you do that?" Or sure, or that that's interesting. Like, and it it kind of makes you look at it from a different perspective. So yeah. um, it's I don't know. I feel like I've probably learned just I've probably learned more from doing them than anybody has learned from watching any of them. Sure. So, um, that reminds me of when I worked for Bob Kramer, he had a, he had a thing he would say about really kind of solidifying knowledge. And, and it was to first watch a thing or learn a thing, then do the thing, whatever it is. And then to really like send it home is to then turn around and teach the thing mm -hmm. because it's, it's a very different experience through each one of those phases to your to kind of round out your learning experience of any even if it's just one single uh, process of if you're drilling holes you know right you know if you're just to watch somebody drill holes okay cool and then you do it yourself okay it's a difference it's more tactile experience and then to try to articulate to somebody how they need to like things they need to think about like when you're first observing versus like even uh, when my wife was helping with the Smith and Bard I found myself uh, like <laughs> proselytizing to her <laughs> about 
all the things you have to keep in mind and think about when you're using your drill <laughs> press because it's going to tear your hand off or something like that. And it's like, holy shit, what is this? But it's definitely all stuff you have to keep in mind. But I don't know. It's just it's just interesting how like that is a very that those kind of like taking those steps is a is a solid way to kind of take in and really kind of dedicate knowledge to to your memory. No, I totally think so. So um, watching yourself, I think is obviously like you just said, you've done it a lot. You have tons of video, but I, I guarantee that almost nobody else has that. Maybe Alex Steele um, and, and maybe a, a couple other people. But I, it would be interesting if more people just kind of like videoed themselves grinding just for their own sake, just I, to go back and watch and see, you know, where can I watch or where can I learn. And improve i absolutely agree yes because grinding especially because there's there's so many nuances to grinding and you know i i feel pretty fortunate that uh i i taught myself how to grind to start with yeah and uh i did you know did freehand hollow grinding and i then i started doing you know freehand flat grinding and then i took a class with uh, mike venino a long time ago like almost 20 years ago and you know he did the Tim Hancock method where they're grinding off a off of a tool rest, mm -hmm. and that was actually harder for me for the longest time because it was it was like it just felt foreign. Yeah. And now I actually kind of implement all of that. So yeah. uh, you know, like when I forge a blade, I'll hog off excess material freehand, hollow grinding, and then I'll usually like. Uh, do a few flat grind passes like off the tool rest and then i usually do everything to finish i actually do most of my finished work like freehand especially when i'm like feathering in a convex edge sure. and then i like dialed in more with my my disc disc sander uh but the the grinding videos like seeing yourself do it i know i had i had a couple that i I'm, I'm grinding away, and I'm like, now see, you want to be really stable while you're doing this. And then I, when I watched it, and I, it's it looked like I was just like all over the place. Like it looked like my, <laughs> sure. like it was just it, you know, and and it actually wasn't, but it was a good indicator that like maybe I maybe I should change my posture a little bit. Like maybe my elbows are are out too much because a lot of times you mm, tell someone like how how you think you're doing it. Yeah. And then when you get that other perspective, you're like, oh, that's not really what I did. Right. And then, um, I don't know. It, 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 it's very helpful, I think, to, to make you evaluate what you're doing. So. Sure. Well, what's on your workbench right now? What are you working on right now? Uh, <laughs> uh, I have one knife that's actually a Peroni fighter that is super, super duper uh, late to be delivered. And uh, I've just been really struggling to to get it to a point where i feel like it's done mm -hmm. and you and i spoke earlier about that like you you know you you can fret over so many details and, and it, like almost it's almost paralyzing where you're like i just yeah. i don't feel like it's done and you, you know you put your name on it you want to you want to have something that is representative of the best work that you can do on you know at that time and then you start second guessing it like was is this the best i can do yeah and and so that 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 is out there and i'm trying to get that done and uh so that's but then i also have uh the one that was in the 
the videos, uh, that's actually a, a great big ass, uh, 5,200, uh, buoy knife mm -hmm. with a sharpened clip. It's, it's pretty beefy. It's yeah, that's two inch, two inches wide. I and think that's the one I've been seeing. Most like really a, almost 11 inches long. It's like Holy three, shit. 300 thousandths thick at the, the guard, but it's, I got all. Oh, so just under three eighths. It's so big. It's like yeah. 16. Yeah. It's, uh, Oof. I've got. All Damascus hardware made for it, and a really killer piece of um, Clara walnut, stabilized Clara mm -hmm. walnut for the handle. So I'm hoping that I can get that done nice. relatively soon. You got so. some, is there a curl figure in that Clara? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that what defines it? Is it Clara walnut? Is that it's got curl in it? No, it's actually just, it's the, just type the type of, of the walnut. Okay. Um, yeah, those, that walnut with the curl in it is pretty mesmerizing yeah it's the this piece is actually got pretty decent chatoyant it's almost like uh you'd see in in koa oh, wow. or uh, the tasmanian blackwood that mm. a lot of people are are getting nowadays so yeah um it's it's a really really nice piece of wood so um and it's you know heavily sculpted because that's kind of what i like to do so hopefully i'll get it done here shortly and be able to post it on instagram see what happens hell yeah all right so let's move on to the news this is the portion of the show where we talk about kind of like upcoming uh news events and what's going on in uh, the knife world uh sometimes some silly stuff we got a pretty silly uh, story today, but I'm going to actually start it off with uh, news about the Big Sky Conference. So Big Sky Conference is going to be held by Mr. Josh Smith, our dedicated listener and friend of the show. Um, he's actually taking re registration right now on his website. Uh, 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 it's joshsmithknives.com. But this is a conference that he used to hold every year for a long time and uh, about 12 years ago. He stopped doing uh, the hammer in, and it, he also kind of stepped away from knife making, but he's getting back into it, and uh, he really wants to kick it off strong. Uh, so Josh is going to be there, um, you know, running the whole show, but he's got a huge group of phenomenal makers that are going to be uh, doing presentations. It's not I'm not quite sure what everybody's going to be doing, um, but, you know, there's definitely going to be some Damascus stuff. Uh, some tool making, I believe, some blade forging, blade grinding, all kind of like the standard stuff that you really want to learn and see. Uh, but it's coming from some really high, uh, high level people. So uh, it's it, we got Steve Schwarzer, we got Bill Rupel, Jason Knight's going to be teaching there, Alex Steele, Neil Kamimura, Greg Sims, Harvey Dean. Uh, Niels Vandenberg is going to be coming all the way from uh, South Africa. And wow. we got John Young and Bob Kramer actually just signed up. Uh, to help at the hammer and do a demonstration, I'll actually be there as well. I think I think right now I'm I'm uh, going to be doing pro probably my S grind as well as talking uh, kind of like advanced mosaic Damascus pattern development. Right on. And uh, that's a hell of a lineup. That's yeah. that's a lot of talent in a <laughs> small area. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I actually I went to Josh's for several years, and sure. it's uh, it, it was always a lot of fun. Uh, it's really nice place. It's a beautiful area. And, Stunning. Um, we we stopped on our way. Actually, when we were moving back from Connecticut, we stopped at his place for a night. Oh, okay. And he he put us up. And yeah, they have a beautiful property there. Mm -hmm. Tons of space. 
Uh, I think he's going to be letting people camp out there if they like. He's got yeah plenty of property nice. to do that. Um, but yeah, if it, the the spots are filling up already, the the hammering is happening uh, July tenth to twelfth, two thousand twenty next year, next summer. And so get you want to go again to Josh Smith knives.com and get your registration on now because uh it's definitely going to fill up he's expecting it to 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 max out uh probably in the next couple months um so if you want to make sure and check all those catch all those people and see them in person not only is it the opportunity to uh learn from them directly but it's also just the networking opportunity to have kind of like uh the kind of the seeds for developing those relationships with some of these people that could really you know they like Harvey Dean's been in the game for what 50 40 50 years. <laughs> well, that that's why I was looking at this list. It's 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 a nice spectrum of yeah. people cuz you've got like some of the younger guys that are that are really well known yeah. through social media, but then you have some of these other guys like They're Steve that's been living legends. Living legends, living like legends yeah. you know, like one of the, you know, like a lot of people would aptly call him one of the godfathers of yeah. Damascus, modern Damascus and yeah. um you know, and Harvey Dean, like, and then obviously Bob is yeah. an amazing presenter. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's really impressive. That'd be awesome. So get over to Josh Smith's website, joshsmithknives.com and register ASAP. All right. So now, uh, there's not a whole lot coming up. Uh, it's, you know, it's the end of the year. There's not a whole lot on the artisans and steel calendar. So we're going to jump to silly ass news knife news <laughs> and so <laughs> the headline reads scientists have built knives out of human poop to test whether they work uh, i'm not going to go through and read the whole article but the synopsis is and what might constitute the year's strangest sal- uh, salvo against the scourge of fake news anthropologists have ex- uh, experimentally tested whether you can really make a knife out of frozen excrement they concluded <laughs> that you can't. It's amazing. I'm amazed that frozen petrified poop doesn't work as a knife. You know, if you had like forced me to hazard a guess, I would have said that shit probably makes an amazing knife. Like, you know, easy to sharpen, <laughs> su- super edge retention, like yeah, all I mean, around like win in my book. But well, and if you're popping it out of the frozen tundra i'm sure that would do some damage for sure but uh, i i gotta say i'm really glad that the scientific world is is taking the time to you know figure out if you can make yeah a out of like shit. i i hope that somebody was like got a grant to do oh something God. like that yeah. like could you imagine like trying to pitch that exactly exactly so, oh my god so we have this really cool idea <laughs> No, wait, listen, you get, just wait until we're done. You got to hear it out. You wait till the end. <laughs> There's a twist. Oh, my God. That's gross. All right, so before moving on to our deep dive with Mr. Nick Wheeler, I just want to talk about our sponsor, Combat Abrasives, really quick. Combat Abrasives, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> Combat Abrasives makes the best abrasive belts for knife makers available in any size. Literally, if you have like a crazy weird machine that you built yourself that is six inches wide and 80 inches long, it's not regular. They can make a belt for you. So get a hold of them. Uh, if you go take a look at CombatAbrasives.com, you will get a 15% off. You, you will get 15% off with the promo code KNIFETALK. 15. So go check them out now. 
All right. Thank you, Combat, for sponsoring this next deep dive session with Mr. Nick Wheeler. Nick Wheeler, I just – I don't know why I'm calling you by your full name. It sounds so <laughs> official. Nick Wheeler. Wheeler. Nick. Um, <laughs> most, people are, most people are just like, hey, asshole. Hey, so. <laughs> dickhead. <laughs> like, this feels super formal right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. All right. Mr. Nick Wheeler. <laughs> uh, I actually – I just want to kind of pass it over to you, to, you know – Go uh, as, as deep and wide as you want about, you know, where you came from um, and how you got into knife making and, you know, just kind of – I would love to hear your story. You know, we chatted a little bit, but I, w- I would love to hear you kind of recount how you kind of got – you know, yeah, just kind of like, you know, how you got into it. Like wh- where did it all start? What, what's the origin story? We're getting into your Marvel origin story right now, of Nick Wheeler. Oh, I'm I'm nervous. Somebody make a card uh, of that, please. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I should start all that off by again, like, thank you for having me here. Uh, Craig asked me several times, and I I always kind of like pushed it back because I figured nobody wanted to hear anything I had to say. And plus, you know, if you got me on here and actually got me talking about things people would be like wow that guy is an idiot so uh i kind of blow my my cover i mean right now they only think i'm dumb but like not like full-on stupid so um but anyway it was nice having that life for a while so um basically like <laughs> like as far as getting into knife making um mostly i was just interested in like the fast cars and all the women so um and that has not panned out uh, no i'm just kidding uh <laughs> In all seriousness, so uh, my mom had a daycare. She babysat for a guy that was a saw filer. And in his off time, he would carve knives out of wood. And uh, I was 12 years old, and I saw a couple of them. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I asked him if uh, he would teach me how to do it, and he did. And I, I think I made probably about six of them. And I started thinking, like, I wonder how you make a real knife. And I grew up in a town with uh, about a 1,000 people in it. And they do have a grocery store and I went in this grocery store and of all places here on their, their magazine rack, they had blade magazine and knives illustrated. Right. And, uh, I bought them right away and I took them home and I was flipping through them. You know, we have, we have names that a lot of the people that are probably listening to this right now don't know, which I, that's a whole nother subject that I'm kind of sad about, but like there's, you know, huge pillars of the knife making industry that like the whole reason a lot of people right now are on Instagram trying to be knife makers is because of, you know, groundwork that these people made. But like I'm flipping through it and there's, there's some guys that aren't so with us, uh, you know, like Buster Wensky and Willie Rigney. And, and then there was guys like Fred Carter and, and some that are still very much with us producing amazing stuff uh, like Van Barnett and I remember looking at that like, I can make that, <laughs> and, which I you know, absolutely could not. But in my head, I thought like, I can, or I at least want to try. Yeah. And uh, I remember went to dinner with my folks and I, I sat like, sitting there and I told them that I wanted to make real knives. And we started talking about it. And my dad was a little hesitant, like, well, how are you going to do that? Like, what are you going to use? And, yeah. uh, cause he, he had a lot of woodworking equipment, but he, he really wasn't a metal worker. And, uh, I just had it in my head that I could do it. And, uh, my, my parents were 
super supportive of of everything that we we tried to do mm, and uh yeah it was awesome how and old so were you at the time i was t- 12 going on 13 and uh so it was it was when i was in eighth grade when i really really tried to dive into it yeah. and uh i started off like a lot of guys do i got um you know files and put them in the fireplace overnight to it you know <laughs> air quotes and kneel them <laughs> and uh it definitely made them softer and made them workable i didn't know how to reharden them or any of that kind of stuff i knew nothing about heat treating but um you know and we uh, i'm old enough that things that people just sort of take for granted now like we didn't have like now you can you're like oh i want to do this you just jump on google or youtube or instagram and you look it up and there's you know like a thousand people that are showing you ways to do stuff and you know like 1990 in winlock washington with a thousand people like we had a library too but i went to the library and like tried to find books on knife making and uh the few that they ever had they'd been stolen and you know, you, they're like, well, we might buy it again in the future, and you put your name on a list and the stuff. And, makers are shifty characters. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, books from libraries. Yeah, and like we didn't have Amazon, which started off as a as an online bookstore for you young people listening. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so like that was kind of just how it started, and uh, and then it just like snowballed from there. Um, you know, I, I dicked around with it through high school, and. Uh, then the week I graduated, I was 18 years old. I had had a fair amount of money saved up from like bucking hay bales and shoveling horse shit out of barns and stuff like that. And and uh, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do this. And I ordered a, a variable speed uh, Burr King, and oh, wow. I bought a jet metal cutting bandsaw and a ball door buffer and. Had no idea how to use any yeah, of it. Holy and shit, you weren't it, fucking around. No, I was. No, I was not. I was. I was gonna go for it. Right. And, so, uh, okay. So let me recap real quick. So you started when you're 12 in eighth grade, and then your senior year, you're like, I'm all in. So in those four years or five years, you were, you you decide, uh, you, you were just doing it on your own, just kind of experimenting. Yeah, like I would look at pictures in the magazines. Uh, knives annual no interaction with any other knife maker no wow no and uh then in right like right around that time the very first custom knife maker i met uh his name was tiny spencer super huge dude and uh (laughs) (laughs) he's he's not really he unfortunately has passed away but like even when he was around he wasn't known in the knife making circles because um he almost everything he made he sold in uh like gift shops up in alaska mm. and so he just he wasn't involved in sure. like the guild or the abs he just wasn't into any of that yeah. but uh he's he had what i thought was like just amazing stuff at the time and uh I, I talked to him a little bit but you know it it wasn't like he was mentoring me or anything like sure. that it was just an introduction and kind of seeing firsthand what what custom knives because honestly like i never actually seen one in hand prior to that so you know i had basically like (laughs) you know four and a half five years there where i was messing around with stuff purely based on stuff i'd seen in magazines and a couple of the books that i'd managed to get a hold of Mm -hmm. and uh and it, it, it it it's crazy now because now you have 
you have kids that are like 15 and they decide they want to do it and they have all this information that is available and and the ones that make use of it and like start applying it like we were talking about earlier like they're making really good stuff and they they're making things better you know within within their first year sure like way better than I was doing on my own after you know five, but um, and it, it it's really pretty amazing for me to see that. I think it's pretty awesome. Sure. Um, I I don't know that I wish I would have had it any different. You know, sometimes I'm like, well, maybe if I would have been yeah where, twenty years where younger, I, yeah, right, you know, where like would, where would I be now if I had the same resources? Right. Yeah. But uh, but like like we talked about before. Just having those resources isn't enough. Like the the kids that I'm talking about, they're the ones that are like, they decide they're going to do it, and they, you know, I think some of them are fortunate also to have supportive parents. Because like I see, I've seen some of the guys are you know 14 or 15, and like, oh, we're adding on to my dad's shop for my smithy, and I'm like, that's that's awesome. Yeah, you know, some some kids wouldn't have that kind of opportunity, but uh, um, yeah, it's. It, it what's really weird about all that though is that you know I was so young then when I first started going to knife shows and stuff uh everybody's like oh he's just a baby and all all these things and and now like I'm like an old guy and there's all these <laughs> young kids and I'm like wow it's crazy well in the culture at the time I mean it was mostly older men who were making knives at yes the time, right it was like at least probably 35 40 plus Oh yeah, if you're a knife maker. Yeah, it wasn't. You're a grizzled old fucker. <laughs> you you weren't you weren't some little child making knives. No, like you as a, a capricious little twelve year old decided you were going to figure this out, and you busted it out for five years, and you kept with it. That's pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah, and it, it's interesting because that whole time, um, you know, I, I just used hand tools, and that's why I get a kick out of it. Like. Usually I don't even bother reading comments on any of my YouTube videos or anything because I end up wanting to kick the guy in the chode so <laughs> hard that he can blow it out his mouth as a bubble. But like most of those, <laughs> most of those guys are just keyboard experts. But yeah, I've had quite a few where like I did happen to see it, and they'll be, they'll say something about like, oh well, if I had all those fancy tools and oh if if I did this and. Must be nice. Yeah, and I and I think, dude, like I files and a hacksaw for years. Like I it was a huge upgrade for me. I was I was like sixteen or seventeen. My dad bought a one horse, uh like an eight inch bench grinder. Sure. And through a like a family friend, I got a Scotch Bright to bring wheel. Mm-hmm. And I, I used that to like kind of cut down on some of the like the Finish finished it. work. Yeah, 'Cause yeah. 'cause I was doing like full on mirror polish and stuff oh, wow. like that and uh you know prior to that it was just 100 percent handwork and and that you know that was a pretty long stretch to do that True. so and i wasn't it's not like i was cranking out you know hundreds of knives right but, but yeah i mean i i kept at it just because i i really liked it and uh <laughs> i hear a lot of people say like well i was naturally good at it and so i kept it and i'm like i I was, I, I am not, I am not naturally good at it. Like I, I suck. Like I, I was telling you earlier, like a lot of people think I'm trying to be humble when I say like that I hack my way through things. And that's like, that's not trying to be humble. It's just being honest. Like I, uh, none of it, 
none of it. It's like all an uphill struggle, it seems like. But uh but I I enjoyed the process. Like I enjoy um I really like going from a concept on paper to a finished product where you can actually you know, take that thing and show it to people. Sure. And you have this tangible thing that you can see for your, your efforts. And, uh, cause like where I work, my, you know, my quote unquote real job, uh, it's at a, a craft paper mill and, and you don't get that at all. I mean, we make literally tons and tons of product, but it's just the same shit over and over again. And it's, it's just a production job. And so you don't have that sense of accomplishment, like where you can, you know, I can, I can take like a block of Koa and a chunk of W2 and have it in this hand and then have like, you know, a, a clay hardened integral in this hand and be like, I, I made this from these two things here. Right. And, you know, that, I don't know, there's just something really rewarding right. about that. Absolutely. So. so you go through high school, all hand tools until you get a bench grinder. Then you bust your ass chucking around hay bales yes. so you can earn money to get your own variable speed grinder, saw, uh, jet horizontal bandsaw. Like, these are all super great tools to have. Um, and then you finally meet a knife maker, Tiny. How long is it until, like, what's what's your first knife show? What, so you're 18 at this point. Uh, the, the you start going to college? or, or Yeah, I was going to school for engineering. Um just because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Because I, I did pretty well academically in school. And I like I like drawing. I like designing stuff. Which all ties back into why I like knife making. But yeah, um, yeah I was going to school. And I I just didn't I didn't do very well sitting still at a desk. And um, and I, I, finished, I finished going to school for that. But then it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And uh, then I really like. I really kind of dove into knife making at that point. Like I, um, cause I, <laughs> I, I, I got the variable speed grinder and, uh, then I went on to just royally, royally fuck up a whole lot of stuff. Like, you know, sure. cause you go, <laughs> you go from filing something by hand and it taking days to get it done to all and of a sudden slow, minutes, it's, it's ruined yeah. on a, on a grinder. And, uh, I got so put off by it that I just like kind of set stuff aside and I didn't even touch anything for, oh shoot. I don't know. I was, I bet it was close to a year. Oh wow. Because I just was like, I, I was wrong. I can't do this. And, uh, <laughs> which was a, an astronomical amount of money for a kid that age oh, yeah. that earned it through that kind of work to like spend it on that. And then they're like, no, this isn't going to work. But uh, I kind of like just let it lie there for a while and, and then the, the spark came back and I just, I was just bound and determined that somehow I was going to make it work. Mm. And, um, I didn't, but I, I don't know. I was 20 years old and I was doing like, I did quite a few, uh, you know, double hologram daggers with, you know, fluted wire inlay handles and sure. all that kind of stuff. And I really kind of wanted to pursue that, like the Warinsky type mm-hmm. type of stuff. And um, then 
a, a friend was like, oh, I'm going to build a forge. And I was like, yeah, you know, I might, I'd kind of like to learn how to make Damascus. Like, I don't give a shit about making like carbon steel knives. Like that's, I don't want to do that. But, and so like, I'm thinking like, how hard can it be? And so a few of us, we like built the, those like Freon tank forges, a oh, little yeah. Venturi burner. <clears throat> and I had a chunk of 5160 and I just, ruined it like i just mashed it into this like boomerang banana thing that was like absolute garbage i went that is a lot harder than i anticipated sure and you know after you do it for a while or especially if you like if you watch someone who's done it if you watch them do it like that doesn't look that hard right but if you've never had anybody explain to you like how hot steel moves and you (laughs) you just don't understand basically the the order of operations to get a blade the way you want it. And like, it was just a nightmare. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, 5162 (laughs) is not the friendly. No, it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't move that, that well under the hammer, but, but then it, it it turned into this thing. Like, I'm like, okay, I couldn't do the stock removal before. And I, I like gritted my teeth and I, you know, kept my head down and I, and I got to a point where, where I could, you know, kind of sort of do it. Mm -hmm. It's like, if I did that, I can do this. And so, then it became this this challenge of like wanting to understand like how does the metal move and then i got you know i got hooked on like don fogg's forum and that was amazing because like that was information like at my fingertips it was like the youtube of yeah it's <laughs> 1995 yeah it was amazing and uh then with that like i really just kind of dove dove head first like yep i want to I'm going to do this. And uh, now, now I love it. Like, I feel like forging is just an amazing thing to be able to do. Like, Cause you know, the average person, if you, if you gave them a bar of steel, they would just see this finite item that a factory made you know, far away factory made. And that's the shape they made it in. Yeah. And that's the shape it will always be. Mm-hmm. And so to take, a bar of steel or, you know, round bar, whatever, and get it, you know, heat it up to its plastic state and manipulate it like kind of at your will with the, between a hammer and anvil, which is a super old historical skill, but like end up with a, a blade. Like I don't, it's, I think it's awesome. And I, I really enjoy it. it. It's funny to think about how, like I didn't have any interest at first. Like, ah, I don't care about forging carbon steel. Sure. And now and, you're obsessed with it. And, <laughs> no, no, I love it. So, um, it actually forging is definitely one of my favorite aspects of making a knife. 100% agree with you. Um, I absolutely do. Um, okay. So you're cruising, you got this stock removal and you started forging. So who are some of the, so you got in, you got into Don Fogg's, uh, forum, which to people who don't know, uh, it's not live anymore, but you can go onto the internet archives and there are people who have saved in the internet time machine um, pages from the Don Fogg uh, forum, which you can access. But it was, what was it, Bladesmith Forum? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, Don is just an amazing craftsman. Uh, he's an amazing person. He's he's, he's very, definitely one of those leg- living legends. Absolutely. Kind of godfathers of the craft. Um, and, the modern. Yeah. Craft. And yeah. I... I I learned a, a lot from him. Uh, he, <laughs> I kind of blame him for the 
the rabbit hole of clay hardening that I oh, yeah. that I went down because uh, that <laughs> you talk about trying something and failing uh, that was crazy. I like I I see guys now. It seems like they they do the very first one that comes out great. Like how did how like I, <laughs> I did literally dozens of blades sure. before I got one where I was like yeah that's all right and you know, then I got like that led me to like the digital controlled salt bath and all this other stuff, like trying to rein in my control over the process. And, um, yeah, definitely a rabbit hole. Right. But, uh, one that, although not necessarily lucrative, (laughs) I, I did enjoy it. And I really, I feel like I learned a lot about, my bladesmithing and knife making because of that. Cause I, I got, you know, I'd forge out a blade and go through all my thermal cycles just because I wanted to harden it and see what I could do. Right. And, and then in that process, you, you're putting an edge on it and doing all this testing and I'd, I'd test them to destruction. I, I really did learn a lot through that. Sure. Uh, who are some other makers as you were first really like committing to the craft? And, and to knife making, who are some makers who not only that you looked up to like Don, but who are actual like mentors that um, not only gave you uh, feedback, but really helped push you along and, and, and set you kind of like, or helped you along your path, I guess. I feel like this probably sounds cheesy to say it, but like almost all of them that I met, um, because you can, you know, pick up different things sure. from different people. And, uh, it, <laughs> it was interesting cause you, you and I talked earlier one-on-one about, uh, you know, I don't like to critique knives for people mm-hmm. because typically somebody brings you one and they want you to be like, good job, bro. <laughs> Thumbs up. Keep it up. <laughs> and I, I didn't want that. Like I would, I, once I started going to shows, I would take knives with me and I would be like, what do you think of this? And, a lot of makers didn't want to go down that path. So they're just like, Oh, it's fine. And that, that'd be the end of it. And, uh, Greg Neely was actually, uh, what he did with, for me, I, I, it was pretty brilliant. Um, I asked Jerry Fisk (laughs) and Jerry was like, well, Greg makes a cleaner knife than I do. You should ask him, which retrospect and kind of pawning me off, but that's okay. And so, (laughs) so like I went over and asked Greg and he's like, yeah, I don't really do that. And this went back and forth. And, uh, I was like, well, I'm really trying to learn and and get better. And so it took several times for me to convince him that I didn't just want him to, you know, pat me on the ass and send me on the way. Yeah. And so he's like, all right, come around the table. And so I went around and sat down by him and, and, uh, what this is a part he did that I thought was so smart. He he took these two knives that I brought to show him, and he like l- like really looked them over, like mm-hmm. end to end, like all these different angles, like different light. Yeah. And then instead of saying anything about what he thought, he handed them back to me, and he goes, "So what's wrong with them?" Mm-hmm. And I kind of looked at him for a second, and I was like, "What?" And he goes, "What do you think's wrong with them?" And so I proceeded to tell him like all these things that I thought were wrong. I was like, well, the plunge cuts are off a little bit. And this one, I, I think the, you know, I have like a weird dip in my bevel and uh, the tip is probably not perfectly centered. And I was like, this one, the handle, like it's not a real smooth transition. And 
I got done and he's like, yep. And I, you know, I kind of looked at him like, he's like, he goes, I actually didn't see that transition thing you mentioned, but you're right. And the the reason I was so smart is because his approach is like, if, if, he, if he had done that, like, what's wrong with them? And I was like, nothing. They're perfect, bro. He would have been like, you know what? You're right. Carry on. Have a nice day. And that would have been the end of it. And so to ask me, like, he realized like, a, I'm actually like trying to be better yeah. and I'm really focusing on like trying to figure out like what I'm doing, like what needs to be better. And you know, he did ask me like, well, if you know all those things are wrong, why are they there? And I was like, well, it's cause I don't really know how to not do those things yet. Mm. And you know, cause I, I think just about anybody, if you show them yeah. a blade that has perfect plunge cuts, and a perfectly centered edge and a perfectly centered tip, they're like, okay, I see that. But then you give them a piece of steel and you know, put them at the grinder and like them being able to replicate that, that's a completely different thing. <laughs> now so, you do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, that was a really good push for me. And um, there were, um, Mike Venino was, was uh, a really big one for me. Mike had actually learned quite a bit of stuff from Tim Hancock. And uh, I was at the the Eugene show one year, and I I actually had some of the like higher end air quote uh, stock removal knives I made, and I was going around talking to different people, and he had these you know he had some forged knives that I really liked, and he's easy to talk to, and I found out that they you know he had classes sometimes, and so like I went and actually spent a couple of days with him and watched how he forged a blade and like how he ground it and stuff like that. And that was, that was really helpful and kind of giving me a little bit better foundation. Sure. And, and then, um, it, real quick, he, so he was a folder maker, right though? Or did he, he would, I, I've, I've only known him as a folder maker. He actually did a lot of, uh, fixed blades back then. Sure. Uh, like high end buoy knives okay. and stuff. And now, yeah, now he's geared more towards just, folding knives but um and uh i don't know it's really interesting that um what i kind of looked or learned from him and i like took it back to the shop and then that ended up you know i kind of like melded everything together to yeah. make a platform to to try to like grow from sure. and and then the more i started doing it then then I, you, you kind of like reverse engineer things like, well, I want it to come out this way. So like, how do I, how do I get there yeah. instead of just starting and like hacking your way through it and then not being happy with the result. And so uh, that, that is how I ended up being the weirdo I am now, or I, I try <laughs> to try to do things in a way that I know that I can do it like repeatably and, sure. and with consistency. Cause yeah. uh, you know, otherwise I, you know, if you're just if you're just completely flying by the seat of your pants, a lot of times you you, you don't really know why you ended up where you did. Like sure. you might have something's off, and you just can't figure out why. Right. But if you were systematic in how you, in your process, it's easier to eliminate that. So. Yeah, I think that's smart. So you started going to the shows. You've gone to the Eugene show. You've uh, connected with some makers. <sighs> I, let's see. I, I got actually a couple of questions here. I had a thought and then I lost it. <laughs> um, so I guess 
you're a journeyman. Yeah. How, what was it like getting to that point and, and going through that testing process? Because I don't know if we've, well, I guess we've had a couple uh, certified Smiths on the, on the podcast. I think Craig, Craig had interviewed some other mm-hmm. ones in the past, but um, what was that like for you? Uh, for getting, <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah. Get building up and getting to that point and feeling like you had the ability to qualify for that kind of certification and just even just presenting your knives. For me, it was insanely stressful. Uh, it's, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you just make five knives and show up and, and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a bystander, it's, it doesn't seem like it's that hard, but when you're actually making the knives, you just start scrutinizing every little thing. And, uh, I, I was like kind of an anal retentive freak about stuff to start with. Sure. But then when I was doing my test knives, it was like every little thing I would just come back and look at and redo five times and mm-hmm. um so it, for me it was it was pretty stressful uh i've talked to some people that didn't think so like it's kind of breezed through it but yeah. um but i also i i knew that failure could happen like i mean you, you can't really guarantee anything but i didn't want to go down there and present five knives to the judges and have them be like what are you doing? Like, <laughs> Why what? are you even here? <laughs> yeah, like, um, and so I really, really stressed out over it. And uh, I actually started to do the test one year, and I stressed myself out so bad that I ended up canceling the trip. I didn't even go. Oh, wow. And then I went ahead the next year, I went down and, and did it. Sure. And uh, it, it it's interesting, too, because um, – you know the the era when I did it, they they did the the George Peck Award for like the best one that was submitted, and I know at a certain point, like I just I started focusing on that, like mm. I want that. You want the award, and <laughs> sure, and not I don't know, I don't really know how to articulate it, but not so much just to say like oh I got the award, but like I, I just I wanted to go down there and show them work that like really said that I'm serious and i'm trying i'm trying to you know mm, be a, a good maker yeah and uh and that and that like so that just added more stress to it and honestly like i think that's probably a really poor idea is like having that kind of having your sights set on that i mean i i don't i think it's fine to want it but i i think it kind of like it got it got too far in my head but then once I was actually in Atlanta and my dad, I was able to take my dad down with me. Uh, I remember getting there and I'm like, I just want to get, I just want to pass. Like I want to, I want to get my stamp and, and feel like I accomplished that. And, and if I do that, that's, that's what I came for. And that would be amazing. And I thought it like, you know, I had it, I had scenarios in my head, like, what if I don't, what if I don't get that award? And my, my, weekend going to be ruined and all this mm-hmm. stuff like that and and then it's like no i just want to pass like i just want to yeah i want to submit the knives and feel good about the process and and then like i feel like a weight was lifted off of me after that sure and um and it, it, it you know it was a good weekend like i said i got to take my dad yeah and so 
what kind of advice do you think you could you could offer anybody who might be trying to go for their journeyman smith? Um, I, you know, obviously, like you said, you, you tested in a different era, but I'm sure there's some timeless advice that uh, you know. Uh, one of the things I've always heard is that you know it really does push you to look at your work differently than mm-hmm. you normally would. But I've never really built up anything getting ready for that, and so like. Did you ask for other people's input and advice? Um, you just do it on your own. My my plan was to have have like six knives that would be presentable, and then try to take them to Mastersmiths for critique mm-hmm. before I went. But I didn't get I didn't get stuff done in time sure. to do that. So. Um, I would absolutely recommend if, especially if you're in an area where you have, you know, some journeymen or master smiths or even just somebody that you feel like does really clean work as, you know, some kind of an accomplished maker to, to ask them for some genuine input on your work. And especially if they can give you sort of a systematic way to, to, to look at the knife, like starting in a certain area and like building off like for me, uh, you know, my own knives. It's it's the Ricasso. Like the Ricasso is the is the foundation of my knife. Or if it's an integral, it's it's the bolster. Yeah. Is like the foundation of the knife, and then everything goes from that. And you know whether your edge is centered, your tip is centered, the handle symmetrical down the yeah. center line, all that kind of stuff. It it's based off of that. So like if you can find somebody that can help you with that. In, instead of just looking all over the damn thing and being like, well, I don't know, I guess it's good. If they can give you a, a kind of a process to break it down, I think that helps. But um, I, I, I do wish I would have been able to do that. It was a good plan. It okay. just it just didn't work because yeah. I didn't get things done in time. But um, you got them in, done in time for the judging, but not in time to have right. Any like feedback. me put when I put them in front of the. Judges. The judges. Holy shit. That, <laughs> that was the first time any master was Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. And uh, I don't recommend that. I don't um, know why you were stressed out. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, it was. Uh, it was really rewarding though, and you know, and I, I had it in my head like, it, two years after you get your journeyman, you can get your master smith, and like oh, that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah. But then life just gets in the way, and sure. now it's been. A really long time <laughs> since I got my journeyman, yeah. and uh, I I haven't even come close to for testing for master. So, yeah. um, and that's I you know I think God I, I stressed out that much over journeyman. And as far as you asked about advice um, for journeyman, I I feel like every year the bar gets raised a little bit higher because sure. people keep bringing in better and better work like if you if you took master smith knives from like say like the late 80s they probably would not look very good compared to what people are turning in for journeyman knives now but it's just because the information is there the community for building this stuff is so so broad and so strong like it, it People were just doing better work. They didn't now. have Nick Wheeler in their life yeah, in nineteen seventy six. Showing you <laughs> showing you how not to do things. Um <laughs> but yeah, if if and obviously if um I know Jeff 
touched on this before. If you if you can go take a actual class with someone, oh, yeah. I think that will shave so much time. And and it's it, it, like say Nick Rossi, a guy like that, you can easily look up his work and find tons of proof that he knows what he like. He he has the results to show like he knows what he's doing, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, obviously, there's videos of him him working and stuff like that too. But you go to somebody like that where they're at an accredited school, and I think it's going to put you just leaps and bounds ahead of you know the twelve year old that's hand filing a soft file sure. in his garage. Um, and yeah, I mean, because I could show people like every little single thing I do in the shop. Sure. But just seeing it on the screen, especially nowadays, most people are watching it on their phone. So it's a small screen. Like just seeing it, it it's one thing. It might help you like with one option on, on like how you could do it or maybe how you don't want to do it. But to actually have someone there with you yeah. and especially because once you start doing it, if you have that, that guidance to be like, whoa, no, you're, you need to keep your elbow in or yeah. You know, don't be swinging all over the place. Like just whatever they might see that you don't even know you're doing because it's completely new. Well, it's that it's an instantaneous feedback versus yeah, like you said, watching a video, or reading instructions from a book, it, having somebody right there to be able to instantaneously say, whoa, 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 slow down. You're about to hit yourself in the head with the hammer or something <laughs> like that. Or you're. I know I've been forging sometimes, and uh, especially when I was first starting, like I was really trying to watch what I was doing, and my face was like five inches or mm -hmm. six inches away from the work. I wasn't wearing eye protection or anything, and uh, it was actually Mike Quesenberry we were forging at Bill Burke's shop, and he's like, uh, let's get you some eye protection, because <laughs> either you're going to hit yourself in the face with the hammer, or the blade's going to pop up, or forge scale's going to pop off and hit you right in the eyeball. We don't want any of that happening. No. I was like, ooh, I never thought about that. But I also had just like started forging blades too mm -hmm. at the same time, so it was just a lot, a lot to learn. But yeah, no, I I, I wholeheartedly agree. I I took a class at the New England School of Metalwork, mm -hmm. and uh, just the immersion, especially their Intro to Bladesmithing class. They obviously offer short shorter uh, classes, but that's a two week class. Um, I think it's the introduction. Anyways, the two I took the two week class, but the the immersion of being there and that was your job while you were there was forging, mm -hmm. and just to have that much time on task forging, I forged as much in the two weeks as I think I had in the previous two years because right. you know when I'm forging I'm not forging knives all the time I for I spend you know a couple hours forging a knife and then I go on with the rest of the process. And I'm only doing that a couple times a month, and so that doesn't right. that doesn't add up very quickly. Versus just doing it eight hours a day, forty hours a week in a classroom setting um, makes a huge difference. And it also, I think, one of the things that in being immersed like that, it took me uh, instead of having to stop and think, rethink like my order of operations and processes, it became second nature mm -hmm. nature because I was just doing it nonstop. And so, uh, yeah. Well, and there, I think there's a lot to be said for the networking too. Oh, for sure. Whether it's the, you know, your fellow students or just, you know, whoever that the instructors were, like getting getting to rub shoulders with those guys, um, it it just kind of 
connects you more to to this craft and what's going on and yeah. and uh having having somebody who has real life experience to mm-hmm. bounce ideas off of and or even like asking questions about like where do you buy this yeah because like you know, most people walking on the street, they don't know where you buy something for knife making. Yeah, like sources for the guys I work with are like, where the hell do you buy all that stuff? I'm like suppliers. Well, how do you find them? I'm like, I don't know. I just know. them. <laughs> and you know, a lot of them you can find online, but most like a lot of the guys I deal with, like I, I just met them through knowing somebody else that introduced me or, sure. you know, and so, yeah, I think all that stuff will help you like, launch your way into knife making faster than doing what i did for sure and if anybody's looking for uh resources like that there are a lot of places you could google search but actually on the knife talk forums we have like a list of all the various resources and supplies of all kinds of stuff so just as a reminder for folks let's take a deep dive okay so before we move on to i i put some questions i put the 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 feelers out for questions for (laughs) mr nick wheeler uh, Mr. Formally, <laughs> <laughs> the very formal Mr. Nick Wheeler. Uh, uh, but before we get into that, I, I just want to touch on uh, YouTube, which I think a lot of our listenership is most familiar uh, and, and most acquainted with you and your work through. Uh, it has been looking around and find, trying to figure out, you know, how, what is, what's the best, I'm sure people are Google, Googling, best way to do this, that, or the other thing. And, um, and I think, uh, as well as word of mouth and probably seeing on forums, uh, which you've, you've done extensive whip threads, which is work <laughs> in progress threads that show your process, but YouTube is where, uh, I think a lot of folks know you from. And so can you talk to me? I, I would love to hear like, you know, what made you think you wanted to start doing the YouTube? <laughs> uh, what the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. Uh, no, but, uh, and why, you know, you kind of mentioned before that you did it, uh, you started sharing and doing instructional stuff as kind of like, a, uh, as a selfish, uh, in a, in a, with a, in a selfish way, not a negative, but it's, you did it to, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'll let you explain it and talk. About no, it. I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it's, it's I'm true. A hard time um, articulating <laughs> right now. Words are hard. Um, I, Honestly, to to answer your question about like why did I want to start doing that, I like the YouTube thing. I I don't really know. Um, it <laughs> I was pretty involved in the forums, and I probably st- still would be. I just you know, time constraints have have changed sure. things like that. And and then as far as like the forum activity, like I definitely shifted the, the time I do have for stuff. I shifted it more to to YouTube and then to Instagram for sure. Because Instagram for me is a super simple, it's fast. It's easy to upload something. And plus since they're short snippets, I don't talk as much. And so it's (laughs) better for people wanting to watch it. Um, but, um, like when I very first did some, basically what it was, was I, I had this, uh, this point and shoot digital camera and I, realized that it had um a short video function on it i was like oh that's cool i want to try that out and i had i'd had a bunch of people asking me some questions on i think it was on blade forums and i was like well i'll see if i can explain this while i'm doing it and so i did that and 
then I was like, well, now I got to figure out how to upload it. And, and I did all that, like zero aspirations of like, I'm going to be a YouTube star or you know anything like that. Uh, I didn't care about the quality. <laughs> Sorry. You got a different Linda snoring over here. I didn't care about the, the quality. I wasn't concerned about a whole lot of any of it. I just was like, this is, this is something that works for me and I'm going to try to show it to these guys. And, uh, Honestly, like going back to what I said earlier, I was thinking like three people are going to see it. Sure. And yeah. And then it's like, oh, I'll do another one. And, and you then, didn't you didn't anticipate that two hundred fifty thousand people <laughs> would be watching your video. <laughs> no. And uh, it was it it was interesting, like because um, I still like I was talking to you earlier, like I still in my head, whether it's Instagram or the ones I've done for YouTube, like I I never really I never really comprehend how far they might reach sure. until you're talking to somebody and they're like, Oh, I saw your video. And, and I'm like, Oh, you saw that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the, you know, the, the most recent I'm sorry one, you had to look at me. I am. I'm like, <laughs> I got a face for radio and a voice for a deaf person. Um, so like the most recent one was like, we talked about earlier was Mandy's dad, you know, and sure. he's a gun guy. Um, he's really into all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, so when he found out, like, had all these YouTube videos, uh, he actually, uh, for his business, he was looking to get a, uh, a carbide engraving system. He was going to do a laser, and he went to a carbide uh, tip, like, engraving system to put his logo on on guns. Mm -hmm. And so I think he just, like, was he came across one of my videos where I was showing how I etched my name into the blade. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, that dumbass has videos on YouTube. <laughs> and next thing I know, like her mom is sending, you know, a photo of him watching me on their like 70 inch TV in their living room. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is, I'm sorry. This is, I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is Nick in real life, life size Nick. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry to everybody. Um, but it's, uh, it's it's fun for me like i don't know like i do like i said earlier like sometimes i think it would be cool to to um like i mentioned to you in private conversation like alex Steele is really good at um his production where you know the average person that might not even be interested in that stuff at all they could watch one of his videos and be like oh that's pretty cool yeah like they might not even want to do it like no interest sure. in doing it but it it's you know, I don't mean this in a rude or negative way, but it's like flashy enough and easily digested that the average person would be like, oh, that's neat. Yeah. Whereas like the stuff I've done, I that wasn't that wasn't my that wasn't really my goal. I was more interested in showing like how I actually do it. And so there's a lot of talking and a, like a lot of steps involved. Sure. And, and you know, that's probably been the most common uh comment that I get is you talk too much. Which I'd be the first to admit that that's <laughs> that is true, but in the same breath, it's like okay, well, I'm trying to show you something for free, so like, shut you, the fuck yeah, up. Yeah, you say <laughs> you say I talk too much, but here you are running your mouth. So it's like, um, oh, that's funny. That's well, and it's did you you said that you didn't expect it to be such a resource for people, and it probably no, it's weird to me. Like yeah. it's absolutely weird to me because. 
Because th there are people who make a Nick Wheeler style knife. You've become like the modern day <laughs> Loveless style knife. Yeah, oh yeah, the for Nick sure. Nick Wheeler style Bowie. Um, and just, that's actually that's why I wanted your your knife on my shirt. <laughs> Fellow is so iconic and so recognizable, especially wow, by makers in the industry. So many people will be like, "That looks like a Nick Wheeler Bowie," and I'm like, "That's because it is wow, that's, Nick Wheeler." Yeah, so that's super flattering. I. I don't see myself that way at all. So, um, it's, you know, it's, it's flattering. I, it's, so thank you for that. But no, I don't, I definitely don't see myself that way. Um, it's, it, it is fascinating to me just, um, you know, the, I, I guess I should back up a little bit as far as like some of the, like, why did I start? Um, like I mentioned, I was super young when I started making knives and didn't have any of these resources. And then when I got, um, my first knives annual and it has makers contact information in it, oh, yeah. I just like started going through and finding phone numbers and calling from my parents' phone, you know, long distance to oh, <laughs> ask these people like questions about soldering and mirror polishing and all this stuff. And most of them, um, you know, had, zero time to talk to me and I, i'm and i'm not like bitter about it because honestly like a lot of times right now at, at at 41 years old a lot of times i'm in the same boat like i'm sure. so busy like man i'd like to help this person individually but i don't i just don't have time i can't schedule it yeah so like i'm not i'm not like mad about it it just it sucked because i was trying to find information and i couldn't and uh <laughs> i remember my dad was like uh you know if if you ever, if you ever get good enough at this, that like people come to you for advice, I hope that you are willing to help them, even if they're a 12 year old kid. Right. And, uh, basically the same way that you were helped. Yeah. And when so, finally, yeah. so it's, you, you know, the help I, that you needed when you first started. Right. And, and, um, you know, I, <laughs> that's not to say that I think I'm uh, good enough to come to for help, but it, that was a big push for me to to follow through with with doing that and um and like i said i i don't for whatever reason i just like i enjoy it and um i don't know the you and i talked one on one about um you know it's it, a lot of it comes back to trying to help educate your collectors too yeah and um you know, some people are are super interested in seeing how it's done. There are, there are some guys they're like I don't care. Like I I just want <laughs> I don't it. want to see how the sauce Yeah, like I, they don't give a shit. Like I like they want the knife done and if they think it's cool, they'll pay for it and that's all there is to it. Yeah. But you know, I've always been one of those people that you know, I was when I was a kid I'd like take a toy apart and figure try to figure out how it worked and um and I had constructs which was like fancy Legos yeah. and I would I had like 20 sets of the things and I'd build, build stuff and like go through the catalogs and see like what, what's the picture of, you know, on the set that I didn't have and try to build whatever was on, sure. on, on this, you know, photo. Mm -hmm. And so that's like, that's kind of how all this stuff came around. It's like, you see something and you're like, yeah, I want to know how to do that. <laughs> and then you, you figure it out. Yeah. You find a way. Or you just, you know, hack your way through shit and, Try to pretend like you know how to do it. Sure. Okay, I lied. I have one more question for you before we move on to the Nick 
Hey, Nick, can I ask you a question? Uh-oh. It's uh, uh, if you if you could give yourself some advice, either back when you were twelve, or really when you when you committed to doing it. I guess at eighteen when you bought the machinery, or, or even really got super serious about it in your uh, you know when you finished school, uh, or I guess a couple of years into college. I guess a, a, a call to any of those younger selves when you're first kind of still kind of getting your your legs under you what would what would advice would you give yourself uh absolutely to try to immerse yourself in in the community and start making connections with people and and go to shows yeah um not necessarily to try to like have a table at one but but just to go and see see what's being made cuz like i said i I had magazines and some books, but I didn't actually physically hold a custom-made knife until I'd been doing it for like five years. And so I feel like just the simple act of like, like physically being there to look at a knife and like seeing how the handles are shaped and seeing how blades are done and and, geometry and all this stuff, I think is a huge platform to build from that, that I didn't really have. And, um, you know, in, in a way, like you and I kind of talked about it privately in a way shows there's certain aspects of shows that are dying off a little bit because people don't want to spend the money to, to go. Mm-hmm. But in, in that same breath, like there's no better way to like see a lot of stuff that's out there and like how people are doing things than to actually physically walk in there and see, yeah. and see knives and handle them. Um, and it, it's not always, it's not always, um, a, a even positive information. Like sometimes you just see like how you don't want to do things. Cause <laughs> I know there was, uh, I don't need to name any names, but there was some makers were like just based off photographs. I was like, this guy is awesome. Like I love his stuff. And then I like, couple of these guys I met them at shows and I pick up their knives and they just, there's like a boat anchor, like this big clunky yeah. fat thing with right. horrible edge geometry and like terrible ergonomics to the handle. And it's like, that's, that's crap. Like, and it kind of shifts your image of somebody, but it also makes you realize like, I, I don't want to do that. Like sure. I want, I want to you know, make a knife where somebody picks it up and I'm like, wow, like that, that feels really natural in my hand. And then for me, making a lot of fighters, especially like the Parany series where they're, they're so ridiculously thick is having somebody pick one up and think it's going to feel like a boat anchor, but they're like, wow, that's really like lively in my hand. And uh, so that, cause those are really important aspects because the knife might look really good in a two dimensional photo, but if it, if it doesn't feel natural to hold it, and use it and and if the finish doesn't look good because uh, that's the other thing uh um there are some people <laughs> that don't do good finish work but they get really high quality professional photos done oh, sure. where the lighting is just right and you're like wow that's a really kick-ass knife and you know, then you, you move move that same knife around in hand and you're like wow there's 50 good scratches in there like what's yeah why is that there so um so definitely to answer your question, I think just going out and trying to like immerse yourself in in that community and you know if, if you can if you could afford the time and the money for a class like absolutely do that 
because I, I think that would take years off most people's learning process. Absolutely. All right. So before we get into this next section, uh, I want to talk about our next sponsor, which is Indasa USA, who are the makers of bow, 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 Rhino Wet, which we all love here. Uh, on the show, I'm. I think Nick not, likes Rhino Wet. I don't know. I am absolutely a proponent of Rhino Wet. <laughs> Major proponent. Um, so our second, our, our partner with the Indasa USA is Texas Ferris Supply, who is a uh, who's who sells the Rhino Wet. And if you go to Texas Ferris Supply and type in Knife Talk Ten, you can save. 10% not only on your Rhino Wet sandpaper order, but anything you get from them. They have all kinds of uh, knife making, uh, supply handles, pins, uh, liner material. They also, obviously, they're a farrier supplier, so they also got hammers and tongs and all kinds of stuff. You can even get anvils from them. Uh, I don't know if the Knife Top 10 works with the anvils, but uh, <laughs> it wouldn't hurt to try it. <laughs> but, anyways. We just want to read that off real quick. Again, go to uh, TexasFarriersSupply.com, type in all caps, Knife Talk 10, and you will save 10% on your purchase from them. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? All right, so here is the Q&A. Hey, man, can I ask you a question, <laughs> which is also known now on this episode as, hey, Nick, can I ask you a question? All right, so... We got the questions in front of us. I'm just I'm gonna go through and, and read these. Uh, so the first one, we'll just kick it off, is from KGB underscore knives. Uh, what is your your recommendation for someone considering a salt bath heat treat system? Um, so you you use salts, right? I do. Um, I you know that's tough because I I built mine from scratch and um, I. I love it. It works really well. It's super duper consistent. Um, but if if you don't have the means or the ability to build one, um, you you have less options. I know when I first like wanted to, to go that route, the only one I could find that was commercially available was uh, it was small in terms of like industrial use, but it was huge. Sure. I mean, it, it held like. 10 gallons of salt or something like that. And it was $20,000. And I was like, I don't know that I need it that bad. Sure. And so that was when I just started like piecing things together to, to, to build one. And, and mine works really well, but there, there are some that are commercially available now. Uh, like I know, um, even he actually has one they and yeah. I haven't used it, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. And, um, so I, I think if, you didn't have the you know the the opportunity to build one or the time that would probably be a a really good option. Sure. Um, I know. I, I think I'd be remiss if I you know you didn't mention the dangers of them. Oh, for um, sure. I honestly, I, and I've had people criticize me for this, but I feel like sometimes people almost make too big a deal out of the the dangers because it, it is dangerous. And it, I mean, if you're not careful and you don't take the right precautions, like you basically could be building a sodium bomb in your shop right but if if you're careful and you treat it with respect and you understand the tool then to me it's it's just another tool at your disposal sure and so i mean that stems from like my dad when i was a little kid you know we'd be out cutting firewood and he'd always like you know 
put it in my head like you have to respect the tool but you can't be afraid of it because mm. he's like if you don't respect it it's going to hurt you but if you're afraid of it you're probably going to be so overly cautious um that you might end up getting hurt too so he's mm. like you have to respect what it can do and he also has made a big point that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl it doesn't matter what color your skin is it doesn't matter if you're young or old you know a power tool if it it, it can bite you mm. and uh, you know, and for for him in his shop, that he's usually was talking about like a skill saw or the radio alarm saw or table saw, but sure. it applies to all the stuff that we use too. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, it it could do a lot of damage. I've heard of people getting burnt pretty bad because it's it's basically like a controlled tube of lava, right? <laughs> you know, in your <laughs> shop, which is kind of nuts if you think about it, but. Yeah. Um, but as long as you take all you know the precautions and you're careful and you don't do anything stupid like introduce moisture to the sure. molten salt, I've you know, knock on wood. I've always been okay. <laughs> as he knocks on his head. Yeah. Uh, Pinocchio. <laughs> um, and then now, like a lot of guys are doing, or not maybe not a lot of guys, but I've seen some guys are doing like the uh, the the live sand, the fluidized sand. And I I haven't ever done that. Sure. Uh, I think it's somewhat similar um you know get away from some of the dangers with it but right. um but since i don't have first-hand experience with it i don't i wouldn't want to really want to say too much about it because i probably the fluid ice sandbag. yeah i probably yeah, sure. spread misinformation but um but the salt the salt itself is uh you know, i i really love it and and you know this kind of to tie back into what we were talking some of the stuff we we're talking about earlier um it's sort of surreal. I've been messaging back and forth with Van Barnett because he's been asking me questions about like my setup and sure. cause he's, he's going to set up salt for his folders. And so that's kind of mind boggling that you have this yeah. guy that was that you were like, looking up to when you first, started. yeah, he was already like a legend in knife making when I was starting back then. Yeah. And now he's like, well, how do you do this? Like, <laughs> like what? That is a trip. And I, like, I remember the first time I was like, why are you asking me? <laughs> He's like, well, I, I respect, you know, what wow. and I'm like, that's awesome. Whoa, this is a, like a parallel universe. But <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, I feel like if, if you have the means to build one, um, you could do it relatively inexpensively, but you know, your most expensive thing is going to be things like your, your controller, your solenoid, your thermocouple, and then your salt, the actual salt vessel, yeah. which in my opinion should be a stainless steel pipe. Um, ideally it'd be 316 L because mm -hmm. that's going to give you the best long-term corrosion resistance. But sure. Um, I don't know. Like that's, there's, that's a pretty, like pretty broad question. There's so many things you could talk about. with Sure. That, so. Yeah. Um, and it, so, yeah, when I first saw it, I was thinking like kind of some pros and cons. I mean, what, what are some of the reasons why somebody would want to go to salt in the first place? I mean, it's a consistent heat source. It is an absolutely consistent heat it source. So oxygen exposure. Yeah, you you don't have the oxidation that you you don't have any oxidation with it. Um, so you know if you if you look at your thermal mass of your of your blade, uh, especially if it's like a thick uh, Bowie knife, mm. that your cross sectional thickness changes so much because you, you know you have thick. Uh, ricasso and you know probably a fairly thick spine but then it's going to come down to a thin tip and a thin edge and if you put that in a traditional heat source like a forge 
you know, the thin areas are going to heat up a lot faster. Sure. And if you don't have any way of controlling your heat, then you have to do everything by eyeball to try to to try to ensure that you you get a relatively even heat on your thicker cross sections, right. but not also burn up the thin parts. Mm -hmm. And it's totally doable. I mean, uh, yeah. guys have been doing it forever, and I'm sure they'll continue to do so. And I, there's still weird stuff that I would maybe do that way, but um, but if you have it in a controlled uh, heat source, it just makes it so much easier to to nail your temperatures so that you set up the best grain structure and you can go into your, go into your hardening phase and, and, you know, reach maximum hardness and then temper it back to whatever you want. Sure. And, um, and then like I said, the, if you can do something like a, a drum forge, uh, like Will Morrison, he's, he's got a really cool one that's uh, vertical. He's got great control with it and he, he does amazing he's work. He's phenomenal results. Yeah. Um, my mind. Yeah, I'm gonna break his fingers someday. But um, <laughs> so, so um, you know, you, you have something like that. But if if you're worried about the oxidation, then you know you have to try to work around that. Sure. So there's um, just different considerations for the, like that decarb layer, right? Kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, like we talked earlier about like the crew forge. Crew forge tends to decarb pretty bad and pretty deeply. So uh, you know, if if you were to take it down super thin before you hardened it and you weren't in a, in a, you know, protected environment, uh, you're going to have quite a bit of material that you got to take off sure. just to get down to the, the good high hard, high hardness steel. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, all that stuff is, is something to take into consideration. Uh, it's, it's not, salt is not for everybody. Sure. And it, you know, it's not the be all end all there's, there's pluses and minuses to everything, but I, I really like it though. Right. All right. This next one is from mindset underscore levels. Batman or Superman? <laughs> wow. I wonder where that came from. Like, <laughs> I would say Incredible Hulk, but <laughs> I was gonna say uh, Goku, <laughs> Dragon Ball Z, man. <laughs> All right. This next one is from Ross Voslu. I don't know. I'm sorry, Ross. <laughs> what's What's your best hand sanding shortcut? Uh, variable speed nine inch disc sander. Mm, okay. Probably not what they were looking for, but uh, yeah, that that will cut down on your hand sanding like exponentially. Um, you know, most of my blades, I. How does it, or why does it? Uh, just the way the cutting action. Um, okay. and you have a, a wide surface that's and uh, the, that was how I actually got into using rhino wet is i was at blade show and i was talking to burt foster and i was mm. saying that like i didn't really like like every like i heard people talking about how great disc centers were and i was really struggling with mine because i would um you know i'd put a piece of a sheet of paper on there and start, as soon as i touch the blade to it it like stripped the grit right off of it mm. and all of a sudden i just basically have my backing on the on the disc i was like that's not doing anything and burt told me about rhino wet and uh it's like oh i'll try it and i i did have some ceramic discs that i used but they're very expensive sure and i mean at the time i think i think they were like five or six bucks a piece and uh so then i was like oh, i'll try this rhino wet stuff yeah. and it was like 
at the time was 35 cents a sheet or something like that. <laughs> and I like go up and I, the first time I was using it and I was like, wow, this, this cuts really well. Yeah. So, so then I started, I'm cheap. So I, you know, when I cut the nine inch disc out, I had those corners yeah. and I'm like, Oh, I'll try these for sanding. I was like, wow, They're this is awesome. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I, and so, you know, since then I recommend it all the time and I, like, I don't, I don't personally get anything from it. Like I don't get free sandpaper or I don't like, they don't, you should <laughs> <laughs> like they don't send me t-shirts or anything, but like, um, but I, I just, I really like it. And I've had some guys, they're like, well, you know, it's not as good as like Norton black ice, but for, for what you pay for it, it's pretty good. And I'm like, I actually like it better. Like I, I've used all those different papers, like all the fancy 3M ones and the, the Norton black ice, which I paid like through the ass for. Sure. It's expensive. Like I think a, a pack of Norton black ice for like comparable grit and, and Rhino wet was like three times as much. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had a special order it and the whole bit. Sure. And I, I just like the stuff cause it works and, but yeah, I, I think, you know, quality paper like that. And it, it, it doesn't have to be that. Like if you find one that you really like, use that. But, uh, I, I like it. And I showed a you know, video on my Instagram recently where I showed how you could basically kind of make it like a PSA where it'll stick on your, in your sanding bar. If, if you want to do that instead of like pinching it around the bar. Sure. That's what um, I do. I, I just I, spray back, or actually, I spray my sanding stick, and so I can take a piece off and put another piece on. Oh, nice! I have a little paper cutter, so I have them all mm-hmm. cut to the exact same size, and um, yeah, I, not a not a corner is wasted on my hand sanding. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm cheap. <laughs> yeah, I do this like I, I can uh, like just in 120 on a, on that Crewforge V blade, and I actually just did a comparison with Norton Black Ice because the last time I did that Crewforge the full integral. Uh, Crewforge V blade. I did all I had was I think it was like 3M roll gold or mm-hmm. gold roll right, paper, yeah. which is the aluminum oxide stuff. And somebody turned me on to I think it might have been Bill Burke actually that turned me on to a Norton Black Ice, and I didn't know where to get it. And I happened to be visiting a friend's shop, and he had a because he did does, does a lot of like 3V and all those mm-hmm. kind of, all that crazy stuff and. uh he had some, and I was like, can I buy some of those sheets off you? I don't think I need a lot. Probably just a couple sheets of each of blah, blah, blah. And I used it. It worked great. This time around, that was the first. I didn't even try to use <laughs> I'm sorry, Andaza, if you're hearing this. I didn't even try it because it worked so well last time. But that was in comparison to the 3M stuff. I'd never had the Andaza stuff before. And I went and I started hand sanding and literally like the first push and pull back all the Norton Black had been crushed through and it wasn't mm-hmm. doing anything. And I, I went and put my Indasa on and I was getting 10 times as much work out of it. And you know, it's, it, and it's not that it, it's, it's because the crew forge V is so wear resistant mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter what you're using. It's going to beat the shit out. Of yeah, you. it will. But the Indasa blew me away and it, you know, I blasted through the 220 surprisingly quick, basically at the same rate as I would, Kind of almost the same rate as I would my normal hand sanding. Right. Uh, it was. I would say it was maybe like twenty five or percent more work mm-hmm. than normal, but uh, it was surprising uh, how much less I was. I was expecting it to be more work. It wasn't. So no, I I'm a firm believer in the stuff, and um, I guess uh, something as far as like the shortcut. I do see a lot of guys. Um, 
kind of like sand in their blade where it's not supported at all. Cool. I don't expect them to build like a big fancy thing like I made, sure. but just a two by four underneath that's, it is like I, I still if, use that. If it's four. enough to to support the blade, because I, I, a lot of times when you see the guys doing that, there's so much movement. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. This is a lot of wasted energy. You know, yep. this energy that could be actually doing sanding, but instead a lot of energy is just moving your blade he's, back. He's and an forth, engineer, so. folks. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree because that that's force. Instead of pushing down, that could have been driving into the mm-hmm. surface of that steel. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. My shortcut for hand sanding is to take the time to do it right the first time because there's nothing worse yeah. than rushing through and getting to the end and being super stoked and being like, what's that? And realizing that there's still some course like 120 or 220 grit when you've taken it up to 2000. And be like, shit, I got to go back in and get that out. Which exactly. Which I got to go back well, through everything all over again. Right. And I think one thing a lot of people forget when they're doing that is you're not just sanding out that scratch. You're sanding down the area around the scratch yeah. so that everything else is at the same level as that scratch. Yeah. And so um, something that is pretty common, and I, I did it too. Sure. But I found out a lot of people do it is they'll be sanding and there'll be like a mark or two that they can't quite get. And they're so tired of being at that grit. They're like, I'm just going to go to the next one. I'll get it out with the next one. And for some reason in their head, like they think they're going to sand the next grit and get it out. It's like, no, dude, if you, you didn't get it out with your 120 grit, you're not going to get it out with your 220. Right. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, more controlled grinding is is a huge, huge thing. Like the better you get at grinding the you know less headache you have sanding but cool all right this next one is from jay gates knives he says uh or they say how do you forge in your bevel ricasso i think they're getting a couple elements of the blade mixed up actually ricasso is the area just below the heel of the blade right so i think that what do you think that's what they're saying is you know like Pulling, forging. Down I think, the yeah, like from the, the dropped edge. Yeah. I think is probably, um, and, and that to me uh, is a sign of a closely forged blade. Not so much with a carbon steel, because like you know, a guy could, a guy could do a stock removal blade, and make it look like a, say it's a forged blade with a really sharp dropped edge, yeah. and they're just full of crap. But um, with Damascus, you can't really hide that right so um as as far as like that dropped edge for me it's um just a matter of like being really careful with my hammer blows when i when i start pulling that edge down um you know i a lot of guys do have a lot of like specific tooling for a power hammer or press and to try to pull that down and for me i just i just start pulling it down uh usually with a the hammer I have that I like for that is it's a fairly heavy ball peen hammer, but I squared the face up. Oh, okay. And I can just like get right in there on the edge sure. of the anvil and like start pulling that edge down. And, um, you know, but not everybody likes that. Like some people don't like a dropped edge at all. At all so, sure. um, but that's, that's what I do. I just, just be careful. Don't hit it like a maniac. Control control <laughs> all right this next one is from uh nano 
Devin OT. I'm sorry. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I'm I just going to screw all I of these I don't know up. how you would say that. Yeah. It says, uh, is there a limit to what color Damascus can be? Do you color your Damascus? I've seen colored Damascus. No. Um, and I don't even know how that works, how people are doing that. Uh, I know that some of the like the Swedish guys, a lot of it gets into the, the mix of steels that they're starting with. Okay. But, um, and then I've seen, I've seen guys do like the, uh, baked on enamel where once, once your blade is all done and etched, you know, etch it pretty deep and you like spray it with a baking enamel, bake it on. And then you, you know, you sand your high spots and it's going to leave the color in the valleys. Mm. And personally, that's not something I like or would do, but, sure. but it's, it's an option, I guess. Um, as far as saying, uh, you know, limit to the colors, I, I feel like that's probably beyond the scope of my knowledge, to be sure. honest. Um, we'll just have to get Josh Smith on here. Cause I've seen, go. he's got a lot of colored Damascus. I've always been curious about that. Uh, especially anytime I've seen, him, I'm just like, how, how are they isolating those different colors and stuff? And that helps kind of shed the light on it some, but I would, uh, yeah, I think, I'll have to get a hold of Josh Smith. Yeah, because I, like I did, I've done a lot of fittings that, um, you know, I niter blued, and you get a fairly broad range of colors with that. But um, I, I never, I never really liked the idea of niter bluing a blade, just because typically the temperatures that I was using the niter blue salts were higher than what I tempered my my blade at, so. Um, I didn't really like using them on a blade, but I know, I know some guys do it. I've heard some guys say that it's a matter of like time at temperature more than just the temperature alone. But like I said, that's kind of beyond the scope of what I know. For sure. All right. This next one is from Schwab Custom Knives. Uh, he says, where did he learn all of those hand sanding tips and tricks? Did you just come up with those? You figured those out? You put you did you have an, your own Nick Wheeler that you learned? <laughs> yeah, that like that stuff is just uh trial and error. Yeah, things like doing it over the years and seeing what worked for me. Yeah. Um that's like I you know, I have kind of funky looking sanding bars that I use and that's all just a matter of you know doing it and like trying to come up with something that worked better for me. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the best thing anybody can do. I mean, you can take in information. I think uh, too often people are waiting to be told how to do things. You know, you can see, you just gotta kind of figure out what works for you. Right. I think sometimes just doing it yeah. is, can be like a really good educator. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I know there was this random thing at work, not too long ago and I showed this I was doing it and this other guy's like who showed you that and I was like nobody <laughs> he was like, how do you think to do that I, was like, I don't know the way the other guy did it sucked so I like <laughs> tried to do something different yeah like I and I don't know yeah so like I feel like sometimes if you just get out there and do it I mean like maybe you know maybe that person will like try stuff i've shown like this is stupid and come up with a better way so you know more Nick Wheeler's a dummy <laughs> dumbass should be doing it this way <laughs> if you feel that way go ahead and make a video call it the Nick Wheeler challenge and challenge him no i'm just joking 
I like it. <laughs> Come up with a better Hashtag way. Nick Wheeler sucks. <laughs> all right, let's see. Uh, all right, Sheffield Forge is asking, how is hard leather comparable to your hard plastic that you use uh, concerning your hand sanding stick backers? No. No. And the reason I say it so resoundingly. Yeah, it was emphatic. <laughs> is... Uh, I did use leather a lot before, and it actually works great. And sure. There's a lot of world-class makers. That's what they use. Um, I take a lot of my knives down so like so thin at the edge that I would be sanding, and I would just constantly like catch the leather and cut it. And then and then you're not sanding with a smooth surface. Sure. And you got this like you know jacked up piece of leather on there, and you either like replace it or have places where it's not actually backing up your sandpaper. Right. And so then I started messing around with like different rubbers, like that red gasket stuff you can get at, you know, like the bulk pump plumbing sheet and stuff like yeah. that. And um, then I just kept dicking around with it and I ended up with that. Um, the one I use the most is it's a urethane and it's super hard. It's like 90 durometer. It's, it's got hardly any give to it at all. It's just a little oh, wow. bit of give. But I like it because. It's got just enough give. It makes it easier for me to get a nice, smooth, consistent pull. But I can also get like right down by my edges, and I don't, it, I don't cut it because it's. You're it's not, not like worried f- about it rolling over the edge, like right? With the rubber gasket. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah, the the softer gasket material tends to wash out your transitions. Sure. Because you know if you have this peak like this, yeah, and you have this cushy. I know. Listeners can't see this, he, but he's making a right angle with his, <laughs> finger, his hand. Yeah, but if your if your material is cushioning and you're cushioned and it's like flexing over top of that, it's yeah. taking your sandpaper with it, right. and it'll wash out transitions. Which, I mean, there are times you want that, like there like certain like super convex geometries or something. Like maybe you want it to do that. Sure. But like if I'm doing a fighter and I want the the transition on the clip to be sharp enough where it's like I feel like you look at it and it cut you. Then I don't want it to, you know, roll over that edge. Crispy. I love your crispy lines. They're awesome. <laughs> They're pretty crispy. Thank you, sir. Okay, next one is from AC Salas. It says, Can you be my dad? <laughs> How old is he? <laughs> I don't know. He's probably 27 years old. If you're from the East Coast and you were born in 1999, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally, totally kidding. <laughs> All right, the next one is from Laramie Jackson. Uh, he's interested in knowing if you're working towards a master say, working towards that master smith certification. No, I, I'm not. I, I just, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm ready. So, sure. Um, that's like that's a huge, that's a huge undertaking. And uh, you know, I, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go do my journeyman and fail. Like I, I definitely don't want to do the master and, and fail sure. um not like like i said earlier there's no guarantees like you you might go and it just isn't your day but i i want to do my best if it comes to that point yeah. that i submit what i think is my best work and would hopefully pass but, sure um and i don't know there's this just seems like a lot of responsibility to have a master smith sure. you know you're the like, master <laughs> like like I'm a master of nothing other than procrastination, so that's procrastination. So I have not to answer his question. You have not. 
Yeah, I think uh, to go back to what you said, you f you were saying that you don't feel like you're ready yet. I think uh, some of the best advice I got when I was thinking about doing the Journeyman Smith was from Adam DeRozier's. He said, uh, not having enough time is not an excuse. So basically saying, you know, it, uh, or an excuse to fail, mm. especially if you have the skill. So if you get knives there and you submit them and then for, God forbid, you fail or whoever fails, uh, not having enough time is not an excuse. Yeah, that's true. You, you should You should have taken the time that it takes, whatever time that takes, to get it right. Cause you that's a good point. Like, you said, like I, I liked what you said earlier. You you about the uh, the award. Um, uh, the, was it Gregory Peck Award? <laughs> yeah, yeah, George George Peck. George award. Gregory, Gregory the, Peck is the is the actor, actor right? right? And it's, <laughs> now it's now it's called the B.R. Hughes Award. Yeah, the B.R. Hughes. But um, yeah, just the idea that instead of doing it for those things, you should be. You articulated it perfectly. Well, I think I, I, I feel like you know some people think that if you do it, it's it's going to mean like a whole bunch more money for your knives mm -hmm. and things like that, and or like the demand for your stuff is going to go through the roof. And like really, I like none of that stuff really changed for me. Like the um, the the people that were buying my knives, they they were still there. They're the same guys. Like I think it's just a progression of getting your name out further as, as the longer you make knives and the more that you're trying to get your name out. I don't think, I don't think necessarily like testing is, you know, cause there's, there's some of the best makers in the world that aren't in the ABS, sure. but then there's also like some of the very best makers in the world are. So, um, I think a lot of that's just really up to the individual. Sure. So, and it, like, do you want to do you want to pursue this and, and try to be good at it? Um, I I feel like for me, it I had that realization that it was more about just a personal thing for me that I wanted to I wanted to have that sense of accomplishment of of you know gritting my teeth and going through the test and that's why I I would still like to someday do the Master Smith test. It just I just haven't felt right. like I was there. I think that. That's what you were that I caught earlier that you were saying is that you were doing it for yourself and not to prove anything to anybody else. Mm -hmm. and I think that is definitely the right way to think of it and to approach it. All right, this next one comes from Burke the Blacksmith. Do you prefer gas or coal forges? Uh, I have extremely limited experience with coal. I've used it a little bit, um, not a lot. I and just based on that um I, I i like gas just because it's you know less time worrying about your fire and more time worrying about what you're actually you know forging sure and there are obviously there's some neat neat aspects of coal like you can get a localized heat in a very small area yeah, yeah. Uh, which is pretty hard to do with most propane forges uh, but... that's what an oxyacetylene torch is <laughs> right <laughs> But as far as like, like just in general, I I like propane. It's it's pretty simple. Like I have a bunch of different you know forges I've built over the years that um, they all worked off propane. And yeah. for me, even here in you know 
podunk nowhere. It's readily available. Right. So, um, but like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying it's necessarily better. It just is, it's just been what I've known the most and what I still prefer overall. I myself prefer gas as well because I have no experience basically with Cold Forge and for all the exact same reasons that you said. All right, this next one is from Pioneer Row and he says, How do you brush those bears you call dogs? It, it is a lot of work. Um, it is, a lot of hair on these Yeah. I yeah, got, I got one passed out next to my feet right now. It's pretty cool. Yeah, when you, when you have a 180. 185 pound dog it's it's a lot of surface area so um yeah it, it's way way more work than i'd like to admit but um, <laughs> and they they both could use some right now in a bath but that's a <laughs> that's a whole day affair to do that so you need a team i do all right so this next one is from bidding your knives uh who i just met actually at blade west uh He's a new guy. He's from Squim, Washington. Oh, really? Yeah, he's super talented, which is, uh, what is it? It's like two hours, two and a half hours north of here. E, maybe three. Three. Um, Sequim. Yeah. <laughs> Sequim. Uh, super talented guy, though. Nice. Uh, he he just wanted to say thanks for everything that you share and, and all the, uh, the help that you've offered. Wow, that's Everybody. awesome. Yeah, there actually, there were several people who said that. We just decided to go with Dan. Uh, to be the one that says it. That's awesome. Thank uh, you. But yeah, there were a lot of people who just had thanks to say. Really? Yeah. Just like, just thanks, Nick. Wow. That's <laughs> it's pretty cool. That's awesome. All right. This next one is from Josh Enid. He says, hey, Nick, what's your favorite word? Oh, I can't say that on air. Is it love? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That is... Okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> a, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Like... I think he's just trying to see just how much of a weirdo am I, you know? Like. <laughs> All right. The next one is from Brody Donnelly Blades. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? Question: How do you guys taper a tang? Thanks. Love the show. I just hit the go button on my tapering tang machine. Oh. And it just does it. I need to get one. And I watch cartoons while it's doing it. <laughs> um, no, I, I do it like I think. I would think is probably the most common way. I I throw some layout lines on there on a uh, you know put some die cam on there. I put a couple layout lines with my height gauge on a granite surface plate, and I hog out most of the the meat out of it. With, so you're talking about like a full tank? Yeah, yeah. And is that not? I, I guess I, he didn't specify. No, but yeah, I would um, say for let's talk about full tank. Okay, first. and then you know then I come. I hog out most of the material with a contact wheel just because you can take the material out faster and you know more belt life and so hollowing out in, in the tang yeah and then i come like back a three and, inch four inch six inch whatever inch, you got <laughs> i i think i most often have used three just because sure. you can get right in there and cut yeah. a nice deep channel yeah um and then i come back you know with the flat platen and then once i got the disc sander i started using it more to to true things up sure and then you know, having a surface grinder, I kind of jerry-rigged up a basically like a sign plate type setup oh, yeah. where I could just basically I wasn't really 
grinding them in that way i was just making sure everything was flat and true right and basically like as long as all the prep work i was good by the time i got there i was basically just kind of like dusting the surface mm. with the surface grinder and just making sure it was flat right but um i just i did the ho hogging it out and then flattened it on a platen for a long time that's what i just did on my uh on my smith and bart set like the collection i just dropped recently yeah same thing hollowed it out i think i got a four inch contact wheel and uh i actually ended up i used a like a 36 grit belt that was too worn out to just do regular grinding on mm -hmm. but you put it on a contact wheel you get way more yeah life out oh of it. it's it's crazy uh <laughs> that a contact wheel with the softer backing and the the smaller amount of you know surface area that you're contacting they just they'll cut and cut and cut yeah and uh you know and i think I think for a lot of guys, tapering a tang is, seems like this kind of daunting thing, and they get they make it out to be harder than it is to do. Because I, I feel like if you can grind the blade bevel, you can be able to figure out how to do. I think I was the, doing both sides in like ten minutes. Yeah, and um, you know you see so many guys nowadays they do like a pretty thick piece of bar stock, and then they just like drill like a shit ton of holes. Yeah, like Swiss cheese is what I always think of when I see them, and they're actually ending up with like a weaker tang because they've removed so much of the structural integrity of that tang. And I'm sure that half of those guys are the same ones that leave comments like, "Oh, that was a lot of work. Too bad you made a hidden tang, piece of shit." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Have you ever tested one of your knives?" Sure. Um, you know, because. I think any any of those options, like as long as you do them right, you're going to be okay. But yeah, tapering a tang is not too bad. Sure. All right, this next one is from Metalhead Knives. It says, when a clay uh, force hormone, oh wait, yeah, when a clay force hormone I put on a blade after back tempering is, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I, I'm reading what it says. It's just not making sense to me. All right. I think basically what he's saying is he did a clay hamon, but he's wondering uh, if he go follows it with a with, by like blue backing it with a torch, if that's benefiting it, if it's pointless. Or I see it. absolutely no reason to do it, right. um, because you know you, you're increasing your thermal mass of your blade when you're putting the clay on the spine, and basically you're keeping it from cooling as fast as your edge is when you quench it and so you're you're not actually uh, creating uh, martensite in the in the spine of your knife and you're you hopefully if you did everything else right you're creating it in the edge yeah. but uh, martensite is the structure that we need to temper back so that it's not brittle and so if you know if you haven't created that in that part of the knife then then drawing it back with a torch isn't going to do anything those and if, basically. Yeah, and if anything, you shouldn't have to do right. If you did your and if anything, you know, if you if you have like a lot of wicked detail, like a really you know wispy, smoky hamon, and you let your heat bleed too far, you might take away some of that detail. Right. So if, you're, if you don't have good control, you might be doing yourself yeah. a disservice so, by going back in there. Yeah. So I mean, I I wouldn't do that, but yeah. Cool. Yeah, to I wouldn't their own, I guess. Sure. <laughs> but hey, basic, basically, it's point. If you did your hormone right, it's you shouldn't have to do that. That's right. What, that's what claying and, and insulating that right. portion of the blade is doing is, is preventing it from getting hard. So if you've done that right, 
you don't have to go back and yeah. Back. So it's it's, it's not gonna help you. Yeah. Okay. Next. In one, my humble opinion. Yeah. Super humble. <laughs> uh, the next one is from R S uh, Koner. Sconer? Art Rasconer? I don't know. Sorry. All right. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm just curious what happens to knife performance when a knife has been sharpened frequently, uh, eating away a fair bit of steel for uh, from the original dimensions. Maybe a comparison of different grinds and their usefulness over the lifetime of the knife. S grind con uh, concave or hollow. I think they meant to say convex. Um, but then a hollow and a flat. Thanks. Love the show. That's 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 a loaded question. There's a lot going on. Yeah, and there. I think I think mostly. I mean, I would imagine that it's because he mentions the S grind that it's more geared towards chef's knife. Mm -hmm. I think no matter uh, it, all knives uh, over time, especially chef's knives, though. You know it, it, what he's talking about is if you could look at the cross section of the knife, and then you see that down at the edge. The knife is being sharpened, 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 say over 10 years or even a year or five years or whatever. Uh, over time, you're working your way up into thicker and thicker material. How does that affect the performance of the knife? And when it comes to chef's knives, re-thinning the knife is an actual thing that you have to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think realistically, it makes, it makes sense for other knives that you would adjust the geometry as you work up into that thicker cross-section of the steel. Um, I have basically no experience with that, but with, with chef's knives, I know that, I mean, it, most professional sharpeners, um, especially ones I know and trust, uh, around the country, that is part of their job as they sharpen a knife. Some, some chef's knife sharpeners, actually, they will thin the knife first and then finish with sharpening it. So what they're doing is readjusting that geometry of that knife so that once it is sharpened, it's ready to rock and roll yeah, again, just absolutely. as it was when it first started. Yeah, because, I mean, you start, you're taking material away from the original design of the knife. Like, when it left your shop, yeah. you had that geometry dialed in to, to where you felt like it had optimal cutting performance. Yeah. And if you're altering that, you know, you're, you're eroding that material away, like, you're, you're going to have a thicker bevel. Right. It, it, yeah, it has to be thinned out. Even if it's a you know, a camp knife or a utility knife, like it, all that stuff. It, sure. I, I've had people bring like some family members being like a, you know, an old marbles, uh, hunter sure. that had been sharpened back to where it was like half the width of what right. it would have been when it left the factory. Sure. And the edge is like a you know, splitting mall. It's you know, <laughs> like 50,000. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. And like, there's yeah. no way you're going to sharpen this. Like it has to be thinned out yeah. then sharpened. So basically the point of the story is you would the, the performance realistically should not change because as the knife is being sharpened over time realistically it's also being reground and rethinned as well so mm -hmm. the performance should basically stay about the same um and so the difference between an S grind convex hollow whatever doesn't really I don't know to me no, it's, you, it's a non point you have you have guys that are like super <laughs> adamant that whatever grind they do is like the grind sure. and yeah, any of the other grinds that's that's shit i don't want to do that sure. but if you if you look at a lot of those guys that are that way not all of them so if you're one of these people don't get mad <laughs> at me but like a lot of those guys it's whatever their preferred grind is the one that they learned and that they they kept doing and they're most comfortable 
And so like, like me, I started with hollow grinding and then I like wanted to do flat grinding. And then I was like, well, I want to, what if I do like add some convex to it? And so like, to me, it's better to try to learn all those grinds and then, then do the one for the blade that best suits what the purpose of the knife is. So like if you're making a, a straight razor you want a super, super thin hollow grind, you know? But like if I was going to make somebody a camp knife, I wouldn't grind it that way. Why? So. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I don't know. What do you, you don't know how to make knives. Next I don't. Way. Hashtag who does he think he is. <laughs> yeah. All right. This next one is join or die knives. <laughs> wow. That is. That was a hard Serious. one. <laughs> join or die. Uh, it says. What do you have to join? I don't know. Sometimes when forging certain Damascus patterns or stainless clad high carbon, it's easy to cause delaminations. Uh, any tips on keeping patterns from splitting things? In my experience, uh, it's about um, material prep, especially if you're trying to do a stainless clad because it doesn't really like 1084, 15 and 20, like they want to stick together. Yeah. You know, like they, you get them hot and smack them like, okay, we're married now forever. Sure. <laughs> um, but some of the, some of these other mixes, like they might not be so apt to do that. And so for me with those kinds of materials, it's all about prep. Like I want it, I want clean mating surfaces. I don't want like tons of space in between the layers. I want them to fit pretty well. Yeah. Um, you know, some guys you are surface grind them. Uh, depending on, on what it is I, I have, yeah. like if, if I'm just doing, I mean, honestly, 90% of, of forge welding for me is, uh, 1084 and 15 and 20, just cause like, that's, I like that mix. I feel like I make a, a decent knife out of it. Um, and it, it likes to, to be forge welded, but, sure. um, so for that, like I, if I have really bad mill scale on it, I usually grind it off, but I, I don't like surface grind each each layer before I stack them up. But okay. sometimes if I have a really critical weld, um, I have before just like, if it's like a, a four way and I want to make sure that when I like go, come into my squaring dies and I squeeze it, it's going to like stick all the way through. Yeah. I, I've done, I've done service grinding and stuff like that, but sure. Um, a lot of times it, I, it hasn't seemed absolutely necessary for me, but, um, I, I know there, there are some guys like full spectrum. Like, well, aren't you lucky? <laughs> you know, there's some guys that like don't even touch it and it's got like shit and grease and everything else on it. And they like get it to stick and they're fine. And, but then there's <laughs> other guys that are like super duper anal that like everything has to be like a certain finish yeah. and like it's cleaned with whatever and it's done in a certain atmosphere and um i guess i'm kind of like right in the middle how about you what about me what do you think about uh tips on <laughs> keeping them from splitting <laughs> uh to me my first question would be like uh, my concern would be what temperature are you forging at because mm -hmm. as you're if you got it to stick solidly and then now you're ready to start forging a knife and then it's coming apart. Something it, my first question would be, yeah, what temperature are you forging at? Cause you might be forging it a little too cold mm -hmm. or especially if it's a stainless clad, you know, stainless heats differently than carbon. 
and it, it wants just a little bit more time to heat up before you start forging on it. Um, it I feel like you like, could be too aggressive with your material movement too. You sure. Know, you, you're trying, I think usually for most guys where that's a big issue is like forging the tip in mm. and you know, they start getting a little ham with the, the hammering going crazy. And yeah. this, like you said, the steel is getting cold and they, they reach that point where the material is like, no, nope, we're just going to separate. We're, we're done. But, we're over this marriage. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, yeah, exactly. I think yeah. the temperature that you're moving the material at is sure. super important. Yeah. But then if, if they're forging at a decent temp, then, then I would look back to their prep mm-hmm. and what happened before they got yeah. to that stage. Yeah. All right. This next one is, uh, is from Kane RVA. I'm about to attempt my first hormone on a W2 blade. What can I expect after quench in regard to the clay removal? I use I used chimney sealant as clay. Will it simply rub off or will I need to grind it clean? What am I getting myself into? <laughs> what are you getting yourself into? That's uh that's a slippery slope. There's mm-hmm. um Yeah. <laughs> you mean like dozens of forged blades? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um I I only used the the chimney stuff a couple times and then I got a hold of um the Satanite yeah. and I've used that ever since. Uh I I for me I like how easy it is to mix it up. It's consistent. It's so fine. Yeah, I can, I can like add water, maybe start off with less water and get a thicker mix. You can just really tweak it to whatever you want and it's super cheap. Yeah. I mean I I haven't. You I, buy one bag; it's gonna last you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I bought I bought like a twenty pound bag of it. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, eighteen years ago, and I <laughs> I still have a shit ton of it. Because I'm like gonna it, grab some before I leave. Like it, it's just like <laughs> takes a little tiny bit to do a blade. Yeah, and uh, and so like I can't really answer him. It's like what he needs to expect with that as a clay. But like sure. if it's Satanite, like it's it's nothing. Like Usually, usually like I just pop it off. Um, like if you, if you go really anal on your prep, when you like, you take your blade to a relatively fine finish and then make sure it's like surgically clean before you apply your clay, it'll, it'll really stick on there. But, oh, really? Mm, but a lot of my, a lot of mine, I, and this goes against a lot of conventional wisdom, but because it might be a total failure on your your hardening process. A lot of mine, I would do my do my thermal cycles. I'd grind it to a sixty grit belt. I might like go over it a little bit with one twenty just to make sure I didn't have a real, really deep scratches in it. And then I just clean it with uh, dish soap, and I you know put oh, interesting put my clay on there, and it it's oh it, it is it always stays on throughout the hardening process. Sure. So, and then I just keep a I just keep a, a putty knife there and I scrape it off you know, before I go to tempering. Yeah, I don't think it sounds like he's worried that he's gonna it's never gonna come off for whatever reason. And it, it comes off even the I, I've used the cement clay, it comes off pretty re- easily. In fact, maybe too easily sometimes. Mm. Uh, it has this tendency, especially if it, it's uh if it's dried in a shorter period of time. Um that it'll start bubbling up. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, and 
which isn't necessarily a good thing because then it's not right against the surface. And those bubbles are different places where quenchant, whatever your quenchant medium, it can get in between the clay and the steel, which kind of negates the whole purpose of having the clay in right. the first place. So do yourself a favor and just get some Saint Night. I mean, that would be my recommendation. Yeah. But I don't know. I'd, I'm pretty sure there's quite a few places that sell it. Um, you know, even in a smaller container. So. Sure. Make some friends. Yeah. Maybe they got a 20-pound bag laying around <laughs> that they're never going to use. All right. So this next one is from TW Knives. He says, I have a question. What is a good weight for an 8-inch chef's knife? Uh, I've made a few now. I'm not sure if I found the right weight. I know it's a bit of, of personal preference, but I was just looking for a rough number. Love the show. Love the content. Uh blah 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 blah. thank you so much <laughs> so anyways uh so in my experience with my chef's knives and i don't know if you you get crazy with weighing your blades and stuff um but, sometimes yeah. but the chef knife question is definitely all you <laughs> yeah I, I weigh basically every single knife it's just part of the data i take down on my sheet and actually you know like send out with the on the sort of certificate of authenticity and whatnot and uh an eight inch chef's knife in a cut for my carbon steel stuff is usually around uh you know seven and a seven and a quarter seven and a half ounces hmm. which is pretty light uh it's less than half a pound uh and even with an integral blade or an integral bolster it's still and then it's basically the same weight you would expect to find on uh, a non-integral mm-hmm. if it was a full tank you know the uh the smith and bar knives they weighed out to be basically the same but if you think about it you know they're non-integral but they are full tank so you're just kind of redistributing yeah. that weight in the tank instead of being concentrated in the bolster so i for a eight inch chef on my and the way i make my knives uh it's usually about seven and a quarter to seven and a half but I don't think that's necessarily, you know, Nick and I were talking uh, earlier, you know, about sometimes how people get caught up too much in some of the details of, you know, specific thickness at the spine or thinness at the edge and all this kind of stuff, especially regarding chef's knife geometry. And I think ultimately it has to cut and it has to cut nicely. Uh, it, you obviously don't want it weighing as much as a brick. <laughs> Because um, this is a tool that not only is going to be pushed down, but lifted back up, and um, and used for you know usually long shifts, sometimes four to s- seven or eight hours of prep work, um, if somebody's using it in a professional environment. So, you know, but I think even going to a cutlery store or uh, you know Japanese knife imports online. John Broida uh, run, runs that shop, and he does a really great job of taking down the stats and information, and that could be actually a really good resource, too, for figuring out weights, because he's got all those weights on there. Oh, that's um, awesome. Um, as well as, like, dimensions and shapes and, you know, all the different profiles. You know, the thickness at the spine where it meets the handle versus the middle of the blade and out of the tip, mm. and all that kind of stuff. So I've, I've used his website as a, as a resource for sure. Uh, when it comes to figuring out my chef's knives when I was first starting out. That's really cool. Yeah. That's a lot of information to have available. So He's got a huge, yeah, he's got a database of literally like hundreds of knives um, that are all kudo, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're just these slight little differences. And so it's, it's cool to look through. All right, this next one is from Matt uh, Campion. 
uh, he says, hey, cuties, uh, what would the cu- uh, cutest, <laughs> what would the easiest stainless steel to, uh, what would be the easiest stainless steel to start with in term, uh, terms of grinding and hand sanding if there is an quote unquote easier steel to work with? Heat treating is being done by Peter, so I only have to handle the grinding. I've currently only used 1084. Thanks for all the help. All right. I I have very limited experience with stainless. I would probably recommend like AEBL. Yeah. Um, that, would, that would be my suggestion. It's it, it's clean. It's consistent. It I think it makes a nice a really nice knife, and, and you can do a, a beautiful finish on it. Um, you know, w- with stainless, like you can go nuts with the different alloys yeah. that are out there, but especially like if you're you know just trying to to add that to to your arsenal of, of what you what you can offer somebody, yeah. I think that's a really solid option because you can make a a really great knife and it it's the corrosion resistance of it is is good too. Yeah. Um. And I mean, be brutally honest, like, I feel like every time you turn around, there's a new one that comes out, sure. and so there very well might be like some that are more advanced. That somebody's gonna be like, "You're an idiot. You should have recommended this." And so, like, I mean, that's completely possible, but um, even some of the old school stainless, I still think make a good knife. Like ATS 34 has been around forever and I think it makes a solid knife. I made, made my dad a hunting knife out of it. I don't know, 23, 24 years ago. Oh. And like, he loves it. Yeah. And it's, it's mirror polished ATS 34. So, um, you know, a lot of it is he's saying it's going to be professionally heat treated. So that's not an issue. Like that's a big part of it. So, uh, you know, I, I've heard guys say, well, I don't like that stainless. And now I'm like, well, what, like who's doing your heat treating? And they're like, well, I, I did it in a Ford. Well, you're doing air. If you're doing an air hardening steel in a Ford that you better be really good or you're probably just ruining your steel. Sure. Yeah. That that might be my pickup truck. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, all right. So yeah, my my first uh, thought is ABL as well. Uh, from what I understand of people who do a lot of work with it, a or stainless ABL is kind of an unsung hero that has been around for a long time. What since like the late nineteen forties or something? that's been around quite a while. I think. I think. Um, yeah, a long time. Yeah, and it's it's funny because it it perform it creates such a great tool, and has been around for such a long time. And traditionally, was made for shaving razors, right? Mm-hmm. It's razor blade steel, um, but because it's been around so long, and it, it's not you know new fancy powder metallurgical stuff. Uh, it's it's almost like it was before its time, and now mm-hmm. now it doesn't get any credit, even though some of the best makers in the world absolutely swear by it um and I, Nick Wheeler. I, I have like five sticks of it in that box out in the shop that i just got from nice. uh the new jersey steel baron yeah so. yeah so uh okay next one is from bryce uh bricey lisher says, hey man, can I ask you a question? Is it possible to make a Damascus pattern incorporating a bronze or copper layer into a conventional 15, 20, 10, 95 billet? Obviously uh, stacked and drawn out, so the cutting edge will be the high carbon steel. Uh, thought it might 
uh, it might make an interesting pattern. Any thoughts? Uh, thanks and appreciate the pod- podcast. Uh, I, it exists out there. People are doing that. Uh, the stuff I've seen, though, based on my experience and understanding of how patterns are developed and made, um, it looks like it's a very kind of like it's it's like the last steps of the pattern making. And basically, it's like to me, it looks like it's been rolled. It's like he, it's been heated and rolled in a cladding that mixes copper and probably at least a nickel layer in there somewhere because otherwise it would not stick to the steel. Um, but and then and then texture manipulated and then uh, mm. rolled flat again and so you have some activity. Oh, sorry. The dogs are going wild. Who let the dogs out? You're okay. So yeah, so going back to, I was like, what are we talking about? Uh, I forgot. Yeah, all right. So the copper and the bronze, I've seen it. It looks interesting. I don't know how, uh, I don't know if it's known how it perfects or uh, affects the performance of the knife over the life um, and, um, and, and, and just how, like, how it affects the corrosion or if it, because there's, there could be some weird galvanic reaction happening between the carbon steel and the copper and bronze or, um, whether, you know, they're, they're, I don't know. It's, I, it's not very well known. I just, I know I wouldn't want to mess with that just because you, I mean, even if you made it work, the heat treating issues that would come up from trying to, you know, quench, you know, a, a shallow hardening steel like those, uh, I, I just wouldn't want to do it. I think that right. it would just make a make an issue. I know there have there have been some guys where you can actually take and etch your blade, get it to you know the the topography that you're wanting, the depth that you want, and then take your etchant and actually like throw a bar of copper in there. Yeah. And it will start eating down the copper. Then you put your blade back in and a lot of the copper will actually adhere to it. But that like that's a lot different than what he was asking about. Yeah, that's so, definitely that's different. Um, and actually that's a process that I just did. I, I don't have to get into it, but basically it's I, I refer to it as copper etching. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. actually what people call it. Um That makes sense. There's right? there's all kinds of there's stuff out there people talking about how they do that if you're interested in that. But yeah, I don't Again, it's a cool look. I've seen it. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen it. I can send you some pictures. Of I actually just saw a picture of a of a billet, maybe today, that was supposed to have a ribbon of copper through it, and I was yeah. just like, okay, I, yeah. I, like I said, I wouldn't want to mess with it. But, sure, you know, to each their own. Sure. I, I de- if you if you think you want to do that, I I definitely think that you do not want to hot work it and forge it like you normally would. The rest of the steel, like I said, this is kind of like all all the all your steel's already made. This is kind of like one last effort to get things uh, like again, again a gentle process would be heat, uh, you know, stacking up your material, heating it, and then rolling it 
versus aggressively forging it or anything like that because the copper and the bronze and uh, will definitely forge faster yeah, uh, I, than the steel and potentially just like you know squish out or get overheated and melted. Yeah, and splatter out everywhere. It could be a big fucking mess. So I just feel like it would be a huge, huge mess. I yeah. wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it. But but All hey, right. if somebody can make it work, then more power to them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, uh, this next one is from uh, Fragment Blades. Uh, I've only done stock removal projects so far, but I've always wondered how you guys go about heat treating Damascus. While mono, mono steels can be heat treated according to spec, uh, how do you choose temps and times for Damascus blades? So, um, I mean, you've—I'll let you kick that one. I mean, that one for me is pretty pretty straightforward. I use steels that have similar chemical composition so they have similar heat treating characteristics yep. so when i go to heat treat them it's it's not an issue right um you know if you and where i've seen issues in blades is where people do use uh steels that have you know they don't have good marrying compositions so say you use a deep hardening steel and a shallow hardening steel mm. uh you know you you're just kind of asking for trouble because you know the the deep hardening steel is probably going to need to be at temperature soaked at temperature longer yeah. and it's probably going to need a slower quenchant than the other steel sure and so you know if do you cater to that one or do you say well this one over here like doesn't need to be soaked at temperature very long and then i need to quench it in you know park 50 right. like you do that and you're probably going to get a whole bunch of cracking even if it's at a like micro level right in your your deep hardening steel. So, well, a guy can do it. You could, you could mix those steels. I just don't see any reason why. Like for me, it's, it's always, like I said before, it's 90% of the time it would be 1084 and 15 and 20. And then I have messed around a fair amount with 01 and L6. And, but those are both deep hardening steels and they like, they require similar thermal work yeah. and they, they harden similarly like I would, I harden that mix in yeah. the heat bath, the AAA oil. Mm -hmm. I do the other mix in my Park Fifty. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff where I feel like some guys are like, well, what if I want to do this? Like, what if I want to mix these steels just like they because they they want to do it for the sake of being different, right? And that's fine, like <laughs> experiment. But like, there's a reason that so many guys use. Like those two different mixes I just said, there's a reason so many guys use those. It's because they forge weld together well and they're easier to heat treat because they don't fight you the whole time. Sure. You know, so if if you wanna forge weld, you know, Carpenter L six to unobtainium and try to make a <laughs> knife out of it, like I mean, hey, knock yourself out, but I I I promise you you're gonna be introducing headaches that you wouldn't have if you just went with a a mix that is happy to be together. Right. That's my advice. Yeah. Nope. I think that's perfect. I can't really add to that. Community Showcase. All right. We are going to call it good on questions. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is our community showcase. Or at least I got a community showcase. This is the part of the show where, uh, you know, we give some love to somebody in the knife community or knife community adjacent. My uh, my person I'd like to feature this week is Patricia Bruno. Uh, she is 
partner, shared owner of IMG-Electromark.com. They are the makers of stencils for Maker's Marks. And so I've been getting my Maker's Mark stencil from her uh, since I started, uh, whatever, six years ago. And uh, she's always been like super quick on getting the art put together. You can send her a sketch or you can have her do some work. I, I sent something that just had like a font and, and, uh, and designed it myself in Photoshop um, and mixed in my insignia, insignia in it, which is a drawing I did myself. And she put it all together and digitized it and put it on a scale that would work for um, my electro marker, which is, I think it's like half inch by one and a half inches wide. Um, and she did it all like in a very short period of time. She mm. did a really good job taking care of me. She got, and you know, they're, they're small, they're a family owned business, her and her husband that own and run the business. And, uh, they, they do a really good job to take care of their customers in, in as prompt, uh, as quickly as possible. And I have sent a lot of people her way and, uh, you know, it, Maybe it's great for them. Maybe it's bad for them. But the the I don't know what this material is they're making their stencils out of. But I don't do a whole lot to like really take care of the stencil, and I'll get dozens of marks nice. out of one stencil. That's actually really helpful for me because I was gonna put some feelers out like who who was a good place now because I haven't bought any for probably years, sure. and it's I'm I'm getting to a point where. I need to get get some new ones made, so that's really good to know. Yeah. Um, and on top of making the stencils, they you know this is their business. Uh, you know, making these stencils and knowing how they're used. And if you're having any troubles with getting, you know, sharp, clean marks, or you're getting some funky stuff happening around it, they can help you troubleshoot any kind of troubles you're having with your stencils, uh, in your stencil etching process. Uh, so not only are they a great resource for the stencils, but how to use them as well. So again, that's Patricia Bruno. Uh, their website is img-electromark. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-O-M-A-R-K dot com. Uh, she is not on Instagram. I keep pushing her to get on Instagram because a lot of really great makers use her stencils. I'm like, all you got to do is share her, share their pictures back <laughs> out. Uh, I mean, that's just what Jim Cooper does, Sharp Raccoon. And mm-hmm. he's doing the photographer anyways uh go check her out send them an email her she's just patricia at img uh electromark.com uh, they also have their phone number and everything on, on their website so that's um, awesome i just straight up contact i i don't really spend much time on their website i just go straight to the contact page or call them if you if you want to start a dialogue with them they're really good about emails i'll have to do that because like i said i definitely need some more perfect that was not planned i'm glad that helped (laughs) it already worked it was meant to be it was meant to be (laughs) do you have any anybody you'd like to showcase or you know i i mentioned to you in putting you on the spot well it's (laughs) i just i hate to like try to specifically say someone just because there's so many people that i like look up to and that I, i think i like admire their work I think if I like had to answer that instead of like saying a specific person, I would say I would like people to like re- like reach out beyond Instagram or Facebook. Mm. Like like go try to find some of the older knives annuals and sure. like see the guys that that like are out there that maybe aren't on. Right. Like, I mean, like just a just a pull name out of out of the hat, like Larry Fagan. Uh, Master Smith does it all. Like he's a like sole authorship 
maker and the guy is amazing and not only is he is he in my opinion like one of the best knife makers in the world like he's a super humble like awesome guy like i i know one year at the reno show uh i saw him and him and tim hancock were really good friends and uh they saw me and uh, like i think they kind of like half-assed recognized me from you know being at the show i'm like hey you want to come have breakfast with us and i'm like uh (laughs) yeah and I'm like sitting there, like these are two of the best knife makers in the world. And, like I'm just, they're just hanging out with me, having breakfast. Like we're all cool. Right. And, um, you know, but I, I, like Larry isn't on. He's not like an Instagram guy. No. And that's that's where, um, you know, I, I talked about, you know, the people before. It kind of kills me is when I I see a lot of the younger guys. They they look at somebody that has a big following, like oh he's like one of the best in the world I'm like no he's one of the best in the world at like building a big following sure that doesn't i'm not saying that means they're not a good maker sure but there's such a broad spectrum of makers outside of that that bubble right and it social media is amazing for reaching a lot of people in a hurry but it isn't the be all end all like there's so many guys out there that um that i look up to and have inspired me like throughout this whole time I've been doing this. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I really admire about some some of the some there are some of the new the new group of people that are doing work to put on some of the, you know the old guard I guess the mm-hmm. Godfathers. I mean, when I first learned about uh, Steve Schwarzer, my first thought was, all right, well, who is he? I started googling, found his website, gave him a phone call. He and I started chatting and. I'm learning all this history that, you know, you don't really, it's not written down anywhere. It's mm-hmm. really just carried by the memories of the, these guys that have been around since the beginning or before, like at the beginning of the ABS or even before the ABS, mm-hmm. like Don Fogg and Steve Schwarzer and like, like Fagan, right? Yeah. He's been doing it forever. I yeah, mean, all these guys. guys like Daryl Meyer that Darryl, were, yeah. you know, creating, you know, American flag Damascus, like back before, anybody would have even thought you could do something like that and uh you know and a a lot of these guys now they just they don't they don't know some of these roots just because it's not like within the scope of what they're looking at every day sure and um you know there there are guys like steve that he does have a a presence on instagram which i'm elated about because he, he should get recognition and 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 people should be seeing the kind of stuff that he knows how to do um but but there's this a a ton of them that um you know like some of the names i mentioned earlier like i feel like people like who is that and one it really got me one time was i was talking to a guy and i mentioned something about don fogg yeah and he's like oh i never heard of him what's his at is at and i was like oh yeah he's (laughs) he's not on instagram what's his at and he's like oh i don't know him then and like he was just done with it like oh he must not be any good i'm like not important i'm like no oh he, my god <laughs> no like it like him and kelso did collaborations that are like literally museum quality work like yeah look it up like use right. google for fuck's sake you know sure yeah do work to figure out who who pioneered the way not just who's hot right now 
All right. Well, I'm going to say that that's a good way to end the show is kind of more <laughs> on a positive note uh, instead of going through beefs and all this stuff. Plus, it's already been really uh, – it's been a long one. I really appreciate everybody hanging out and sticking through it with us. I think it's definitely been worth it. It's really an incredible opportunity, Nick, to sit here with you and just – you know, you know, we, we've – we were talking about this earlier before we started recording. We, we've chatted on Instagram for a long time. We've lived within 40 <laughs> minutes of each other for also a long time. But I've never actually met you uh, either in, you know, anywhere at a show or anything. This is our first time meeting. And, uh, and now he's fully disappointed. Yep. And so I'll never come back and see you again. I'll only come back to, come back to hang out with the dogs. Um, no. As it, you should. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really uh it's really been a great pleasure because i i have uh you know i've been admiring your work and and i've i've definitely gleaned wisdom gleaned wisdom and insight from uh from your videos and there are definitely a lot of solid takeaways and it's very helpful whether or not i do it exactly the same way uh, that is a different question <laughs> but you're 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 you sharing your process has helped me as i i've been told that me doing the same has helped others. Oh, I I appreciate that. I appreciate it. I I appreciate saying that. And like I said before, I wasn't like blowing smoke up your ass, but something I really, really like about your account is, um, you know, you share all these processes, but you're also one of the guys that like people can look and easily find, you know, world-class work. Cause there's a lot of guys that they, they share stuff, but it's like, well, what do they make? And it's hard to find, Mm -hmm. Because, like, personally, like, I feel like if a, a guy, even if he's really articulate and well-spoken and he, like, shows you how to do something, but then he doesn't have any work to show for, it's like, well, I don't, why would I, why would I take your word for it if you're not, if you don't actually do it, if you don't have proof that your, your process works, like, why am I going to listen to you, you know? So, anyway, cool, man. that's just my two cents. Appreciate it. It was <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Have fun hand sanding. Peace. <laughs> when you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.